Oh, hey, everyone. I'm back. It's agent time. Wahoo. Uh, so I, I was gone <laughs> for two weeks and uh, yeah. I, I, I come back and oop, oop, oh, I have a bone to pick with the two of you. Okay. With the two of you jabronis. I, I, can see, I can see that your Rick and Morty audition I was didn't say, go well. I was going to say, you're doing well, a semi-Justin like, Roiland thing here. Yeah, I you mean, did not get picked to replace I did him. not. <laughs> Turns out, surprise, surprise, I did not. Two weeks ago, uh, the night yeah. before we recorded the Neuromancer episode, I uh, I called you both at 1.30 in the morning and said, I have to go to the desert. And when you said, mm-hmm. why do you have to go to the desert? I have to build a ziggurat. Right. To my great spider goddess Shagobai, and you didn't ask like Shagobai. Yeah, Shagobai, uh, the great oh, okay. uh, spider goddess. Uh, yeah, yeah, no, uh, I remember this. Yeah, uh, Google it much. Why didn't Why didn't Shay go high first? Uh, because Shagolo. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I go to the desert. Uh, mm-hmm. For two weeks, uh, not mm-hmm. 40 days and 40 nights, because uh, I'm built different. I was building the ziggurat, and it was a lot of work. There was a lot of sun. Mm-hmm. I mean, the catering alone cost me so much money. And yeah. uh, I built this monument sort of, you know, in honor of love and respect to uh, the great spider god, Shagobai. And, uh, in defiance I re- of all other known deities, obviously. Yeah. And yeah. unknown yeah. deities. And yeah. I get mm. back uh, to my apartment and... I find that there is a package sitting on my table, mm. and it's from the two of you, but I don't recognize the return address. It's from a place in New Jersey, mm-hmm. I guess. Mm. Yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, there. a place called, I guess, Ong's Hat? Correct. Uh-huh. And so I, I opened this box, yeah. and uh, I'm like, it's so nice of them. They know how hard I worked in the desert to build the ziggurat. I, they, yeah. They surely must have, like, taken time out of their day to send me something reassuring and lovely. And what I find uh, was a hat full of cum. Yeah. (laughs) We, uh, we made that with our own four hands. (laughs) It's your cum? So many possible worlds, but we got this one. Welcome to the worst of all possible worlds, now with six hands once again. And three dicks. I'm the worst of all possible Joshes. I'm the worst of all possible AJs. And I'm the worst of all possible Bryans. And let me tell you, it was days of cum. That it was, went into yeah. That hat. Yeah. D A Z E, even. I think why I'm so excited, AJ, to have you back is that it really wouldn't be a complete worst of all possible worlds episode without you bringing in important facts and figures and bits. Lots of figures. So many charts. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> tables. You know, if there's one thing that people say about me, it's that I know my facts. Right. And I've <laughs> never once been wrong about anything on this show. <laughs> right. And so uh, when we were putting together today's episode, which is about Stop Making Sense, the yeah. 1984 concert documentary uh, about talking heads, yeah. You were very excited to put together some facts about Talking Heads. I was. I was. I was very excited to cover this particular film. Yeah. I, I will say sort of uh, 
from the outset to kind of clear the air about it. I, I, I'm not like the most religious talking heads fan in the world. I, I don't regularly play their music. It's not in my rotation. I, I, I respect it. I think mostly more than I enjoy listening to it. There are some very notable exceptions, but they are more like kind of like the mainstream choices, I think for the band. Uh, but I was so excited to talk about this film because yeah. this documentary might be one of my favorite films of all time. I only sort of recently discovered it. Uh, it was sort of a thing that uh, a lot of my friends in college would watch a lot, and I would see it sort of in the background. But it's something that, like, you have to, like, sit down and let it, like, fully envelop your world yeah. to, like, I think, yeah, yeah. fully appreciate. And I yeah, didn't you can't, do you that. Yeah, you can't have it on recently. in the background. It's not that kind of movie. No. I mean, you. it is nice to, like, check in every once in a while, sure. I think. But, like, to fully appreciate, I think you do have to kind of sit with it and let it uh, completely alter your world. But I really only got this appreciation for it because uh, a, pod, a podcast that I'm a big fan of, uh, Blank Check with Griffin and David, did a series on Jonathan Demi, which I think is probably one of my favorite uh, of the series that they've ever done and they talked about stop making sense and they couldn't stop raving about it. I'm like you know what it's time that I finally sat down and watched this thing and so I sat down I watched it a couple years ago and I became obsessed with it and then you know now every once in a while it's just a comfort watch I throw it on and then they took it away because A24 got the rights and did this full restoration so I went, got to go to the theater and see it live uh, there and uh, it, it rocks as hard as it did the first time I saw it and I think we'll continue rocking for the rest of time Absolutely. Um, Brian, you had not seen this before we watched nope. it for the podcast, right? Nope. Any connection to Talking Heads at all? Uh, I know some of the songs. Uh, I think, Brian, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, burning down the house for a very specific reason, I think. Because of Home Improvement? Because it was the song that they sang in the finale of Home Improvement. Hell yeah, dude. But that's right. That's right. They got they got the construction workers, the recurring character construction workers, including the actor who played Pete was a longtime member of Bob Dylan's band. Oh, That's actually shit. what he did long before he was huh. an actor in such hits as Home Improvement on television. Yeah, they do kind of a stomp thing where they play it with uh, power tools and, and mm. harmonicas and whatnot. And it's sort of um, a very up-tempo version of it. Like, it seemed yeah. like they needed to, like, condense it to get it to, like, fit the sitcom time uh, limit. I um, also remember, again, because I was raised by television, I do remember Kermit the Frog singing once in a lifetime right. on Muppets Tonight. Right, right. Oh, in the uh, suit, right. He wears he wears the suit. I, I know Psycho Killer that's been on TV shows and stuff. Uh but no, I'm I'm not I guess I'm not super fam- I mean they they have some big hits. They have some yeah. things that have really propagated. But like no, I've 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 never sat down and listened to the albumography of They call of it a the, discography. Yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes. I do like albumography. Sometimes it's on tape, you know, it's a cassette. <laughs> yeah, Josh, you you, however, I think are probably the biggest talking heads. Yeah, fan no, I, of, I, I of mean, any of us. Remain in Light is one of my favorite albums of all mm-hmm. time. Uh, I've followed David Byrne religiously. Sometimes very physically. Uh, yeah, yes, love. Yeah, I mean, oh, I wasn't true. following him exactly, but yes, I went and I saw Here Lies Love, which is the musical that he co-wrote with uh, Norman Cook, aka Fatboy Slim. Yeah, uh, that is on Broadway right now. And when I went and saw the show, I was standing right next to David Byrne for three quarters <laughs> of the show. <laughs> he and really loves going; like he's there like all the time. Apparently. Well, and yeah. it's, it's it's so fun to watch people watch something that they have made mm-hmm. but that is also beyond what they have made you know what i mean like yeah he gets he was so clearly getting so much enjoyment out of watching these actors 
take the material and elevate it based on their own performances. <laughs> he's he's older now, but he's still a quirked up white boy, you know, yeah. and so I identify with that pretty strongly. Sure. Um, and just in general, for me, I think like, you know, we've done a fair bit of stuff on this show about Stephen Sondheim and like that that is music that connects with both of you and Brian, especially on a very mm-hmm. specific level. Uh, and well, AG to both of you. I don't know. Why I said Brian, especially that connects. I'm going to take that again because I'm a special boy. You are a special yeah. boy. Um, yeah. I'll just have take, to take it again. OK, yeah, then I won't. Because um, no, no, we're going to keep in that Brian's a special I, boy. I, I want the <laughs> listeners to know how special I am. <laughs> <laughs> um, it wouldn't be unfair to say that I have a similar relationship with talking heads mm. um mm. I, I don't know if it's quite as all-consuming you know I, I i have not like been listening to them as long as maybe you have been listening to sondheim and stuff like that but um stop making sense is specifically a movie that i am deeply emotionally connected to oh. and uh their music has gotten me through a lot of really difficult times so mm. i'm excited to talk about this movie yeah. uh, and i'm excited for you the listener uh, to be able to hear some of the shit from this because it is fucking phenomenal. And we'll talk a bit about the music. We'll talk a little bit, of course, about the visuals coupled with the music. But before we get there, uh, AJ, yeah. again, stocking up on the facts here, yeah. the facts and logic guy of the podcast. Yeah, it's let's me. get let's let's get it. Let's get those facts. David Byrne Mm. was born in Scotland and moved to Canada as a kid because his dad was Catholic, his mom Presbyterian, and his grandparents did not approve of this interfaith marriage. Damn. That is oh, we damn. love Scotland. That is <laughs> baffling to me. Uh, but yeah, so uh, he moves. He moves from Scotland uh, to Canada and uh, decides to um, change his Scottish accent to an American one so he could fit in a little bit better. But he says, you know, as a kid, he always felt a little bit ostracized. Uh, yeah. In fact, uh, he's kicked out of choir for singing off key, but that doesn't stop him. He continues on. He keeps singing he keeps making music up to and including when he attended uh the rhode island school of design in 1973 where he forms a band along with his classmate chris france and they call themselves the artistic france France? chris france France. hello it's been christopher france (laughs) i keep excellent time um Uh, but they form a band called the Artistics, and yes. I and I am uh, mm. very glad they changed the name. But it is very interesting because there actually is this thing that's sort of dogged David Byrne his whole life, right? In an interview as recent as two weeks ago for NPR, they were asking him, uh, "Are you autistic?" And he's just like, "I don't know, maybe." But like, I, I I don't know. And they're like, "Well, you ever want to get it like checked out? Like, do you want to want to get a diagnosis for it?" And he's like. I don't know. I'm not unhappy, and uh, who cares? Uh, and it's like, uh, yeah, sure. That's cool. a vibe. I resonate with that. That is a vibe. That is a vibe. But uh, Christopher Francis' girlfriend, come on, come on. Uh, <laughs> uh, Tina Weymouth. They would end up marrying a little bit later on. Um, uh, she became the default band manager and would drive them to like different gigs and things. And then eventually, she would be when well, they couldn't find a bassist when they were actually mm. forming Talking Hits proper. Uh, she taught herself bass. That's it, fun. That should be enough to get you in the band. But no, uh, David Byrne asked her to, to audition three times to join which feels excessive yeah this, i would this, just say let her in at that point man like come this on is, this is an infamous part of the band's backstory that there were sort of these fractious issues very early on between uh chris and tina 
you know, who were really, that you know, a power couple from the very beginning, yeah. you know, yeah. fell in love pretty quickly at RISD, like AJ was saying, would get married a little later on in 1977. And mm. David, who is a very uh, singularly driven person, shall yes. we say. Yes, yeah. yes, um, yes. And, and with a very specific vision for how he wants things to be. <laughs> RISD? That's what yeah. it's called? Yeah. yeah. RISD? They RISD it up. <laughs> that's, that's so many letters. It's just, oh. I so once, many letters. I, I once used I once used the term Riz and Josh looked me dead in the eyes and said, you can never say that again. <laughs> it's true. But Josh gets a pass. Got the, I've got the Rizzler pass. Yeah, yeah, um, that, that's my favorite Josh Batman is villain. A, Josh is a Zoomer. Uh, You've matched wits with the Rizzler. Uh, I have, uh, the Riddler has merged with a Twizzler and created me. The Rizzler. Oh no, it's my arch nemesis baby gronk <laughs> so david tina and chris uh graduate from RISD. they move to nyc in 1975 and become part of the nascent punk scene performing their first gig on june 5th 1975 opening for a little <laughs> band known as the ramones heard of them at cbgb yes, uh which I, was I, I have heard of them i see uh at cbgb which is a very famous origin story for a lot of punk bands that you may have talking heard heads of. will even go on to reference cbgbs in life life during wartime yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, cbgb of course now uh home to a john varvados oh, uh God. much like the rest of the bowery just being turned from these kind of interesting spaces into a bunch of luxury retail. So what a, that's such a like spooky thing. The way that history gets absorbed by luxury retail, it gives mm-hmm. me the CBGBs just mm-hmm. to think about it. There's a great quote from Weymouth about uh, where the name Talking Heads came from. Uh, it was the term used by TV studios to describe a head and shoulder shot of a person talking as all content, no action. It fit. So clearly, still some uh, harsh feelings, perhaps, <laughs> Weymouth. Quite possibly. Her time Quite in possibly. the Talking Heads. Once they are in New York City, they start meeting people in that scene. Here they meet Jerry Harrison. Mm. Uh, Jerry mm. was a Harvard grad in 1971, came down to New York City to become part of the music scene, went back up to Harvard in 1974. Uh, This is after he was an early member of Modern Lovers, which is a very influential, like, punk new wave kind of group. Oh, sure, yeah. Um, Went to pursue his master's in architecture, uh, but they were able to convince Jerry to join the band in 1976. So all of these people are designers? Yes. <laughs> yes. Every single member Every of this band single one is, a, of them. is, a, is a, a technical visual artist. And that is why the movie has such a distinctive look to it, Stop Making Sense. And it's also, I think, why the aesthetic preferences of the band, like the reason they went at it like cats and dogs all the fucking time is that they had such strong opinions on what things ought to feel like. And, you know, once they get Jerry on board, the the now complete band set out to find a record label that would take them on. And they did in the form of Sire Records, which was also the Ramones label. Yeah, new label at the time, a division of Warner. They would, of course, go on to sign Madonna. Anything that could be considered quote unquote alternative from the late 70s, early 80s was probably on Sire. Yeah, when they went on to Sire four albums in four hey, years, hey, which is uh, that's a quick turnaround. That's a lot. Yeah. Four albums in four years. That's it, like the turnaround we had to do to keep siring into that hat. <laughs> You're not wrong, Brian. 
I'm not Ong either. <laughs> so these four albums that they would make are Talking Heads 77, More Songs About Buildings and Food in 1978, Fear of mm. Music in 1979, and Remain in Light in 1980, which, Josh, you have mentioned is your favorite. Yes. Doing four albums in four years would lead any band to burn out, or at the very least get under each other's skin. We also kind of mentioned something like this with DC Talk uh, when we talked about Jesus Freak, where it was like, They were doing so much so frequently and they were already at artistic odds with each other sometimes and personal odds. And you can see that in that wild ass Pax TV special. Boy, but the the, the (laughs) sort of how prolific they were and the uh, speed with which they were churning music out, uh, both in the case of DC Talk and Talking Heads. Uh, DC Talking Heads? Is this anything? It can be if you want it, Josh. Let's go. Well, there is. Okay, that's interesting (laughs) because there is actually a lot of spiritual stuff that gets included into Talking Heads uh, discography, particularly in Stop Making Sense. So so I I, I totally get it. And they're actually listening to DC Talk. There actually is some influence, I think, from Talking Heads in their music. Like, it's hard to overstate, like, how... How how much like the sound of Talking Heads permeated into so like many other bands around this time period and for like decades to come after. So the band takes a hiatus for two years uh, because, again, burnt out after making four albums in four years. And they come back with Burning Down the House, which is their only top 10 hit upon release. Huh. Ever. It's also the, their lead single for the 1983 album Speaking in Tongues. Uh, they go out on tour to support that album, and who should happen to come see that concert but a young filmmaker named Jonathan Demi. And mm. uh, Brian, uh, can you give us some of those uh, Demi thick facts? About yeah, our, our, uh, our good boy, Jonathan Demi? I didn't, didn't gather a whole lot about that Demi'd elusive Pimpernel himself, but mm, mm-hmm. that's for all you uh, Baroness Orchi fans out there, all, all of you, all of you big fans. Yeah, Jonathan Demi is mostly known for the fact that he directed The Silence of the Lambs and Philadelphia basically back to back. The Silence of the Lambs was an unlikely prestige picture. It was, you know, a horror thriller that was released in January or February where you don't release awards movies. You don't even release movies that you want to make money at that time. Right. It's always like a big like 300 came out in February and it was a huge moneymaker. This is the dumping season that that late winter. Is there any commonality there between the dumping season and the arguing season? Well, it depends on how much you dump. So Ah, uh, Jonathan Demi, you need a sheet of glass. You need You need a sheet of protective glass and then you you can have the dumping season anytime. So, you know, the Silence of the Lambs was the second Thomas Harris adaptation on film. The first one was Manhunter. Brian Cox's Hannibal Lecter really fucking good really interesting yeah and Demi of course got Anthony Hopkins and Jodie Foster and it's a it's it's a it's a dark and strange movie that sticks with you and it was a big time Oscar winner yeah like I think it's one of the only horror movies to ever win best picture right yeah and certainly in a very rare category of movies released in the first quarter of the year yeah Um, and then of course Philadelphia was another big prestige picture something a, a big mainstream Hollywood movie that dealt with AIDS and dealt mm-hmm. with the AIDS crisis and had uh, a, a big time heterosexual actor, Tom Hanks, in the lead role. Elvis is Tom Hanks, for those who don't know. 
Yes, Tom Hanks yeah. uh, oh, from yeah. Elvis. Oh, yeah, he played that the guy. he played the Colonel in Elvis. Got yeah. it. Okay, yeah, yeah, I yeah, was yeah. trying to play yeah, his most seminal like, performance between right, 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 between right. Mazes and Monsters and Elvis. <laughs> he did Philadelphia. That's what Demi is like known for. And this was about ten years after Stop Making Sense. Right? He directed a bunch of garbage in the 70s he was making a lot of like trash sexploitation movies as like a on like second unit and and a lot of uncredited roles in the, at the very beginning it's sort of like how a lot of people got their start with like roger corman back in the day he made a landmark women in prison movie called caged heat and by landmark i don't mean I, it's good yes, but it's no, something you probably I've heard, heard of, of that one yeah yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. But he he worked his way up. He he did an episode of Columbo in its final season. He sure did. Uh, he did some better movies at the end of the 70s, not necessarily stuff that you've seen or heard of. But then he got involved with Stop Making Sense. He, he was originally contacted to make a different concert movie. Oh. Uh, didn't make that one. That one actually went to one of the first music video directors. But then he made Stop Making Sense. So when you uh, say a different yeah. concert documentary, a different band? So concert movies have their origin more in like variety shows, right? So oh, sure. in the late 20s, we get synchronized sound. Sorry, I'm going all the way back, baby. Here we go. Here we go. Now, <laughs> right. this is what we rely now, this on is podcasting. For. Now, of this course, is podcast. A bunch of people sit in a room. A train rushes towards the screen. <laughs> well, I, OK, we'll go all the way back to there, too, because <laughs> oh, as no! we talked what about <laughs> in uh, Hamlet 2000, I think one of our Hamlet episodes, I think it was Hamlet 2000. Um, one of the very first synchronized sound films was Sarah Bernhardt as Hamlet. She spoke a couple of lines. There was a little sword fight. It's like a minute long, right? right. Um, we don't have the record for that anymore, but we do still have the film. Uh, by the late 20s, we developed the Vitaphone process, which allows us to synchronize sound with an entire movie using a very complicated system of cues going back and forth between a record player and a film projector. For right. a second, I thought you said a very complicated system of cubes. Which would have been a lot more exciting to me personally, just because I like the idea of like, next you have to slide the cube two inches to the right. So by the late 20s, of course, the big hit of the synchronized sound era was the jazz singer starring Al Jolson, right? Who was mm -hmm. one of our biggest stage performers at the time. Um, Vitaphone pictures before this were not talking pictures. They were pictures where you just had the music synced up and maybe some sound effects here and there. Um, but you you didn't have to have your own musician anymore. But with the jazz singer, th this was actual like synced to the mouth. Very, very sensitive stuff because he had to perform a song. And because he was Al Jolson, he had ad libbed during the film shoot. So oh, shit. the jazz singer is mostly a silent film. These performances on stage where he's in blackface. They are sung and you can hear him talking and singing and everything. Isn't it? Isn't it awful that every single form of media that has happened in America has its origins in blackface? Musical yeah. theater, sound on film, everything. You can't get away from it. You can't. You really you can't. Really get can't away escape from it. it. Like it, it, even when it comes to David Byrne uh, promoting "Stop Making Sense." Oh God! I think I missed this. What? Oh, yeah. Oh, so David Byrne did this like fake interview with himself, where he's playing uh, okay. a bunch of different people interviewing David Byrne, oh. asking him about why the suit is so big okay. or why he'd work with Jonathan Demi. Yeah. And uh, so it's him in different costumes. One of them is a black man. Oh, I wish he hadn't done that. <laughs> 
My, I, he didn't consult any of his bandmates before this and being like, hey, I got this idea uh, for a bit. Knows, and they're like, who knows oh, if I don't consulted. know, David. David. Uh, this, or yeah, maybe this, any of the oh. members of the live band specifically who are all black. That's yeah. what I mean. Yeah. yeah. Maybe he just thought like, it's okay. I have black friends, Eish. you know. I mean, it's certainly not an Al Jolson type. This is the same time Neil Diamond did a remake of The Jazz Singer also doing the not Jolson style blackface that's still, you know, blackface. But um, anyway, Jesus God, as as we go on, by the time we get to the 1930s, right, we've we've done the whole Paramount musical where they got every star that they had on the lot to sing Singing in the Rain in front of Noah's Ark. In 1930, we get at least 60 Hollywood musicals produced. Six Whoa. zero. That's so many musicals. That is an absurd <laughs> number of musicals. <laughs> that's like, and I like musicals. <laughs> that's probably like 58 or 59 more than were strictly necessary. <laughs> <laughs> so a lot of these musicals, you know, we have book musicals, musicals that have a story. But yeah. then there's a lot of variety shows. Again, a lot of this is just like, here's the novelty of sound. Come to the theater. Maybe you'll even see some stuff in Technicolor. Um, a perfect example of something that was made entirely in two strip technicolor at this time was a movie called king of jazz there was a band leader named paul whiteman who yes he was uh who was <laughs> wait 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 are you saying he's what he is um and he was known at the time as the king of jazz even duke ellington called him that um but oh. he and his orchestra performed this whole concert it wasn't a live concert that was filmed. It was a concert made for film, but it's still a bunch of people on stage. There's a gigantic piano uh, that has an orchestra inside of it. There's even a little animated segment. There are a couple of little tiny sketches, which are called blackouts, where it's like a really fast, like, ba-dum-bum, and then it cuts mm. back to the music. So yeah. is, is this the first, like, true concert movie then? I would say it is. Okay. Others would probably disagree. There were a couple of well, fuck very, them. It's our podcast. Yeah, <laughs> there were a couple of like classical <laughs> concerts that were done in the 40s. They're very boring with like Iturbi that are cited on Wikipedia as the first concert movie. I think of King of Jazz certainly as like it is a full concert as a film and no one went to see it. And then they made no musicals in 1931. They were like, oh, everyone hates musicals now. And it's like, no, you probably just shouldn't make 60 of them, including yeah. two starring Al Jolson in the same year. Well, well, it's the Western problem, too. Right. Yeah, where, right the, yeah. where Hollywood just does this thing where it burns out on fads. Right. And mm -hmm. we're seeing the exact same thing with super with comic books. Yeah, right? yeah. yeah. Pretty soon, though, people watched concerts if they weren't watching them live. They weren't watching them at movie theaters. They were watching them on television, right? Oh, if you sure. watch the old clips of Sister Rosetta Tharp playing her guitar at the that railroad, that's a that's a TV broadcast. You have the popularity, of course, of American Bandstand and stuff uh, yeah. like that. Yeah, American yeah. Bandstand, Ed Sullivan, right, Lawrence Welk, uh, Steve Allen, and actually Steve Binder, a man who worked on the Steve Allen show, shot a concert called T A M I. Teenage Music International. Yes, teenage is two separate <laughs> words there. Um, that's old. That's old timey shit. You know, it is. you know something's old when there's a hyphen hey, uh, they, thrown they, into they. a word that does not need one. You might not know how old these children are. They're not adults. They're not children. They're what's being called teenagers. Well, I, you know, I was fascinated by the fact that teenager was such a recent term, and that yeah. for you know years you were just a kid and then you were an adult. They had no like real. 
designation for those years. No, but, that know. that's kind of the thing that makes Bye Bye Birdie this important, like, oh, sure. Touchstone It's like the first thing about teen culture. Well, I mean, I mean, that that that's actually I was going to bring that up. That was yeah. that was where I first got exposed to Conrad Birdie was on the Ed Sullivan show. And then I started finding out about like, I think he, he's probably cancelable. He did some really horrible things in an ice house with a teenager. Oh, yeah. Like, Conrad Birdie. Did. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I'm, I'm, I'm the first one to say Conrad Birdie, problematic, problematic figure. And yeah. perhaps we can move on and that we've we've grown. We can say perhaps <laughs> bye bye to Birdie. That's true. Mm-hmm. That's true. Well, Conrad Birdie really did cause a lot. A lot of um, a lot of frustration among America's gay dads. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, the gayest dads! It could the gayest dads ever. I played McAfee in in high school. I thought you it's, played Conrad. I did both. I, oh. Within the span of two years, I played oh Conrad, and then I I no aged modern child so should quickly. ever have to do Bye Bye Birdie, let alone more than once. <laughs> yeah. Can I get Can I get from yeah. one of you just yeah. sort of like a, 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 an example, maybe a, a sure. impression? The name's Templeton the Rat. Um, I love eating trash. <laughs> Is that what you wanted? An example of Paul Lind? No, I was oh, just no, saying. No. <laughs> Brian, I thought you're, that was your but impression maybe. of me. <laughs> I was just saying, like, I want to hear a standard issue gay American dad, but oh, I well, like well, the Paul Lind. Lind. Yeah. yeah, yeah. One yeah. of my favorite Paul Lind bits when he was on the Hollywood Squares, you know, they always ask a question and then, you know, you have the square, they make a joke and then they say the, the answer that they've been scripted to say or whatever. Sure. And uh, so the question was, you know, when a, when a man falls off of a boat, you say man overboard. What do you say when a woman falls off? And Paul Lynn leans into the microphone and says, well, full speed ahead. (laughs) (laughs) Well, well, from this first concert film. Yes, T-A-M-I. Things went full speed ahead for 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 these teens and their music. Well, that's what's interesting here. And this is sort of connecting back to Jonathan Demme and and the other concert movies that are made. T-A-M-I is a is a concert show that is a collection of all kinds of artists. It's all the biggest uh, acts of the day. It was shot on Electronovision in 1964, which was a weird precursor to high-definition TV, where they they didn't have a TV to broadcast it to, so instead sure. they converted it over to film, and then they could show that in theaters. They did the same thing with uh, Richard Burton's Hamlet, same process. So then from there we get a few more movie theater documentaries uh, of concerts, right? Which are, mm. they start, uh, the, the basic ones that are just showing concerts and not much else include a D.A. Pennebaker's Monterey Pop in 1968, nice. uh, which includes, you know, Hendrix and all of these big acts because it was a precursor to, of course, Woodstock. Right. And Woodstock oh, in yeah, 1970 yeah. was released by Michael Wadley. Yeah, it's just a document of Woodstock. Really, the only big creative decisions that are made in the presentation are just in what to show and what to cut. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not a big like backstage thing. But we do also get backstage and even fictional kinds of semi concert documentaries. Uh, most famous example being Richard Lester's A Hard Day's Night. Also in 64, same year that the TAMI uh, 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 filming happened. Well, and Um, and A Hard Day's Night, too, and the thing about that movie was it was really capturing not just the music itself, but Mm -hmm. the hype of the moment. Yes. And that's kind of the thing about that piece that I think also carries through to Stop Making Sense, which was, Mm -hmm. you know, two decades later. It, It still is finding not just how do we document the music, but how do how do we document 
what it felt like to really, truly be there. And it does so by telling this goofy little story backstage but there's half hour of footage that's just them in the studio singing or them on a concert stage or a tv studio uh singing then uh we get da pennebaker once more with bob dylan's documentary don't look back which also has about a half hour of singing in it so these this is a whole category of film that goes beyond just concert movie beyond just documentary um, that is usually referred to as the rockumentary at this time, right? This is Spinal Tap, oh, of course, yeah. sort of the 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 nail in the coffin right. for the rockumentary. Um, and yeah. of course, probably the best film out of this whole category of films was the one that came out the same year as Woodstock, 1970, uh, about the Stones. Uh, this was filmed by the Maisels brothers and Charlotte Zwerin. Um, actually, George Lucas was a cameraman on this as well. Uh, <laughs> Gimme Shelter about the Altamont disaster, um, which Mm -hmm. is behind the scenes and in front of the scenes. And of course, you get to see a man get fucking murdered uh, on camera. So then, of course, we get into the 70s and then we get a couple of just straight concert movies that are of a single act Uh, like the band does a movie called The Last Waltz, which is filmed by Scorsese. And in the 70s as well, we start to get a new form of distribution which is not just bands going on a variety show like Ed Sullivan and performing, but actually filming something ahead of time and then sending that to a television program. Queen is one of the big leaders of this. Bowie is one of the leaders of this. And it's, of course, called The Music Video. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so Demi was was originally approached to do another concert movie that was one of these sorts of omnibus things. It was a bunch of different performers, a bunch of different acts, all all knit together in one film. It was done by a director of some of the Queen music videos at the time. He was but the, who ended the up, format but then Demi of this did this. Yeah. Is following in the style of something like the TAMI movie. Yeah. Where yeah. it's like, okay. All your favorites are here in one movie. Yeah. Okay. But then you have this rise of something like with The Last Waltz, like with Queen's music videos or or Bowie's music videos, where this is about the brand of the band in The Last Waltz, literally the band. But like this is about talking heads. And and in the 60s, you had that, too. But it included more backstage stuff with the Beatles, with Bob Dylan. Now it's none of that. This is just the concert. You're just seeing the concert. You don't see all of it. A little bit is, has been edited and removed, but mm-hmm. you're this is just just a pure concert experience now. And of course, part of this is the rise of MTV. MTV mm-hmm. starts broadcasting in 1981. And now we are just sort of people are expecting a different relationship with music than mm-hmm. had been the case in the past, right? We are right. prioritizing... This is maybe the golden age of, of the recording artist, yeah. right? Yeah. This late yeah, yeah, 20th yeah. century moment. This is where it, the biggest money could be had. Do you know how Jonathan Demi then got in touch with Talking Heads? He just went to the concert and then met them backstage and huh. said, I think this could be a film. And they were hmm. like, okay. that's amazing they they, they took a chance on him right like Ryan as you said this was uh, Jonathan Demme did not have like a a well-established career up until this no the only credit that he has for anything that's like multi-camera or like television was an episode of American Playhouse but they made a profoundly smart bet on Jonathan Demme and we're going to talk a little bit 
about it as we go through this. But uh, one of the things that they, they harp on a lot in that blank check series about Jonathan Demme is just that he is one of the most empathetic filmmakers mm. ever and that he is kind of slept on as an American filmmaker. People mm-hmm. don't really recognize his artistry because he was able to sort of do all these different styles. But there was one sort of constant that he was able to bring to everything and that his his extreme empathy for humanity yeah. and what makes this movie so remarkable is that his natural visual eye is drawn to the things that make you fall in love with these bandmates. Absolutely. The small idiosyncrasies of their performances, the joy that they're able to radiate, and how that joy then like travels down the line of mm-hmm. the band. And for all the friction behind the scenes, what you get in this is a bunch of this one big community coming together to create this beautiful work of art. Yes, a lot of people on that stage, (laughs) but but not at first. Part of what's so cool about the way this movie starts is that it is an empty stage. There Mm -hmm. is nobody on it. And brightly lit. You can see that it's an empty stage, right? You can see the back wall, the stairs. Yeah, It's all just a totally bare. David Byrne wearing a janitor outfit, just sweeping the stage, (laughs) pretending not to see the audience, about to turn around and be like, oh, hello there. Surprise, he's part of the concert. Thank God that wasn't it. No, 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 it's not our job. What we get is a close-up on David Byrne's shoes. And yeah. we don't even know it's David Byrne yet. We just see a pair of shoes and they're walking on the stage. Be? <laughs> uh, who could it be? And uh, he sort of steps in place. We see him place down a little fucking boom box. Mm-hmm. And he says, hi, I've got a tape I want to play. And we, we hear this 808 beat. This is the classic Roland TR-808, the drum machine of the 1980s. And he just starts playing his guitar and singing Psycho Killer. Passing the face up to the facts. Can't so nervous, can't relax. Can't sleep, bed's on fire. Don't touch me, I'm a real Now, this is very different from the sound on Talking Head 77, right? Right. This is austere. This is stripped back. Now, worth noting, you know, the whole like, I'm going to play a drum machine and sing over it. New Order infamously created Blue Monday so that they could do an encore by just pressing play on a TR-808 and walking back off stage again. Oh, so they uh, they didn't even sing with the track. They just played a tape and left. That's my understanding. (laughs) That's great. That's amazing. You want more music here? Fuck it. (laughs) Uh, And things that sort of jump out at you immediately is that David Byrne is an incredible showman. Yes. Right. He's magnetic being just, I mean, this Killian Murphy looking motherfucker (laughs) comes uh, up Bernheimer, comes out on stage and like completely entrances you with just a guitar and his like janky, anxious movements. And when he talks about Talking Heads songs, he describes the music as being anxious, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't 
instill that in you, the listener, strangely, even though Psycho Killer does a lot of very interesting things lyrically and musically to make you feel off kilter. Yes. Right? It is designed to put you in the headspace of the titular Psycho Killer. Yeah, he speaks French. Yeah. <laughs> it's also interesting because um, Tina Weymouth has said some things about David Byrne specifically with regard to him coming up with Psycho Killer and like his motivations and background behind it okay. that feel like they might be legally actionable in countries like Great Britain. <laughs> oh, <laughs> some libelous statements. No, genuinely. What has she said? Oh, uh, let me that find he's a killed a man. Yes, let me find oh, a quote. No. Oh no! So these people do not like each other at all no, anymore. No, they do not. There's a trick in here that I really love. There's a there's a lyric that he that that comes near the end where he says, "We are vain and we are blind. I hate people when they're not polite." And the easier rhyme there is unkind, mm-hmm. right? Rhymes with blind, slots in pretty nicely. Not polite actually overcrowds the line a little yeah. bit. Like you have to really kind of cram it in there. Unkind fits pretty perfectly. And I think what that's supposed to do is your mind fills in the blank of unkind because it rhymes with blind, but then it's yeah. not polite. So you yourself as a listener are thrown. And it's, it's like, it's, it's, it's very normal. Smart. It's normal to hate people who are unkind, but then when it's like yeah. not polite, that's like fussier. And yeah, and more it's a little bit more American unhinged. psycho, right? Yeah. 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 You feel a little bit more Patrick Bateman coming through. I yeah. found the quote, by the way. Okay. Uh, okay. This is from uh, David Bowman in Salon from okay. December 2003. Oh boy. And I quote, well, we were at lunch. Weymouth announced that she had heard David Byrne was a murderer and she wasn't talking about his song that goes psycho killer. Say. No, she heard at a party that Byrne had killed a boy in Brazil using voodoo. She wanted us to play Hardy okay. Boys and solve the case. David is a vampire in a way, she told me. Watch out for the autism. It might be something much more complex. Psychics have seen him. Psychics? And they say... I'm just Psychic quoting killers. Tina Weymouth here. I got you, what I got the you. fuck? Psychics have seen him, and they say he just has a firewall around him. <laughs> okay, so she went to a cyber psychic. I don't. I can't get through the layers of ice, man. He's got a fucking firewall up. He's got he's got fucking McAfee in there. So like, yeah, just like casually told the reporter in 2003 that David Burden killed a child in Brazil using voodoo. Yeah, that's insane. insane. Not, not just insane this man thing is a murderer, say, yeah. but she just so she's insane too. Yes. Like she is not normal because <laughs> killed someone using voodoo <laughs> in Brazil. <laughs> Portuguese voodoo. That that is a wild quote. Uh, I, <laughs> The next time I watch this film, it's going to be every time she she sings fun, nasty fun. I'm going to hear it in the voice of he killed a child with voodoo. Like, was this while she was still in the band? Did no, this she, was in 2000 or oh, when she did when, the quote. Yeah, or, yeah, when when, when, he, when she yeah. learned about him allegedly Unclear. killing a child with voodoo. Like, was she with him? Was she I, with I, him at the I time when he just. I don't know. Like, I, it's just because I, I remember reading this it was yeah she just casually told this reporter and again i i think that she's just making shit up i think she is actually libeling him i i mean there's making shit up but then there's i don't know someone who says that you killed someone with voodoo and she went to a psychic (laughs) like i think she might actually believe this sort of thing I, she also like believes she got that, this from a dream somewhere, right? She also believes that autism gives him superpowers. Yeah. It seems uh, <laughs> the ability to block out psychic waves, which makes you really that, good at voodoo. Like I guess, that, yeah. 
I've also He's got like a Ferengi. Um, from the same story. There's a quote from Byrne as well. He okay. says, yeah, what, did, what was and, this? And this is something that he told the reporter in 96. Okay. Okay. I'd get these bizarre letters from Tina, he said, gritting his teeth. They'd say what a dumb fucking jerk and asshole piece of shit I was. It would go into detail how badly I'd behaved, what a terrible person I was, how hard I was to work with, how unfair I was. It was this thing meant to make me feel real terrible and how much I hate you, I hate you, I hate you. And then in the end, she'd go, why don't you want to work with us? Why in the world don't you just want to work with us? What's the matter? Wow. Fern paused inside. You've answered the question. Look at the beginning of your letter. Look at the end. You've answered it. There's some sort of weird denial going on. Wow. Okay. Yeah, that's a, that is a person who desperately needs an apology from someone uh, and has no idea how to ask for it uh, without screaming, I hate you, I hate you, you killed a child with voodoo, I hate you. Right. <laughs> and I think, that just to kind of, I guess, pull it back to stop making sense, you know, yeah. after Psycho Killer... We, Tina Weymouth comes on stage. Yeah, she's right? the, the second person. Second person. She is, as AJ was mentioning earlier, the bassist of the group. She's a very good bassist. Yeah. Yes. And they play. They have a remarkable chemistry together. They really do. Uh, yeah. And they begin singing the second song here, which is Heaven. Everyone is trying to get to the bar. Name of the bar. Bar is called heaven. The band in heaven. They play my favorite song. Play it one more time. Play it all night long. Oh, There is a beauty here. By the way, the, the the singer there, that is not Tina. That is a backup singer who at this point is off stage. Oh, OK. But you okay. can hear the way that Tina's bass uh, and then David's guitar and vocals are all blending together. There's yeah. something very magical. And AJ, yeah. you told me that this was the first of three points in this movie at which you cried. <laughs> yeah, seeing it in the theater. Uh, I want to I want to I want to set the scene for where I saw this uh, a, a few days ago. Uh, it was uh, at Cinema Village on 12th Street. Uh, it's it's basically just some guy's basement mm-hmm. that has a screen that is vaguely bigger than my TV at home. Um, <laughs> you know, it's soundproofed and it's got all the the, the great uh, all, all that. But it, it really does feel like the last like rinky dink theater. in New I, York I City. think that may be where I saw the uh, Ron the last time it was playing in New York. Yeah, they, they have a really good lineup of things, but it's a very, very small space. I saw it in a theater with nine other people. They stayed stock still. For the entire How is film. That possible? I have no idea. I was rocking out in the back. I was having a great goddamn time. But um, you know, that that particular movie theater is very nearby the NYU campus. So every time I go around there, there's a lot of fraught feelings that obviously come up whenever I visit my old stomping grounds. And so I was already kind of in an emotionally sort of iffy place. But then this song happened, and mm. I think it's just the way that their voices blend together. Uh, particularly in the final line of it where they sing heaven where it's just it really like hit my heart in a very specific way but also like the sentiment of the song of heaven being a bar with music playing 
and it's and nothing always, really like, your happens. Song, you just and nothing hang really out. happens. Yeah, it, it, it there's just like a serenity to that that I mm. feel like, particularly in the last couple of weeks when you know th- things aren't going great in the world. Uh, it brought me a sense of peace, which I think is what the song is supposed to do. And I, it got me thinking about, you know, all the people that I've lost in my life and how mm. nice it would be if that's what it was. Yeah. If that's what comes for us next. It lets you sit in it. Right. Yeah. Like it doesn't it doesn't try to go too fast. It doesn't try to do too much. It just sits there in a really yeah. beautiful way. David Byrne has described uh, talking heads as making emotional sense and not logical sense. And if this thing really is a sermon, right? If this if this is the gospel according to David Byrne and Talking Heads, this is sort of the first steps that we take towards how do you rectify a world on fire, mm. right? How do you how do you go from thinking that you want to kill everybody? How to be like a being a loner psycho killer right. incel? Like how do you how do you fix that, right? And what psycho killer does is it sets up the aggression right up front, but then heaven comes in and it's like this is actually what this guy wants. He just wants yeah. peace. I think like this song really acts as a really good thesis statement for the whole rest of the film, particularly the line, there's a party, everyone is there, everyone will leave at exactly the same time. When this party's over, it will start again, will not be any different, will be exactly the same. And that's sort of the spirit that he wants to curate throughout this whole thing. Yeah. And we get that, I think, uh, as as more and more people flood the stage. Yes, we have stage hands now. Uh, they're rolling <laughs> platforms on. Yeah, the stage uh, hands become increasingly important throughout yes. the show too. The drum kit gets entrance applause. Yeah, <laughs> and Chris France <laughs> has not even <laughs> stepped up to the drums at this point, but then he does, mm-hmm. and he does. Chris is wearing his fucking blue shirt. God damn you, Chris! Oh. David gave very specific directions to everybody that they were to wear neutral tones, and right. Chris said. Fuck you. I'm wearing blue. This is another infamous like piece of the lore for Talking Heads fans. <laughs> They're now giving interviews all together. Finally, yeah, you know, yeah. so it seems like they've kind oh, of they buried are? the hatchet. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They, yeah to, even, to promote the re-release, they all did an extended like publicity tour together for like a David couple Byrne weeks. calls them up and he says, I have some burlap dolls in my house. <laughs> each with a lock Don't of your do hair. This. <laughs> Allegedly. Allegedly. <laughs> and so Chris gets behind the drums and starts banging out a beat. And now, along with David's guitar and Tina's bass, we, of course, have an actual backing beat for Thank You for Sending Me an Angel. We're a bit more upbeat here, right? Yeah. We've got the drums. We're we're moving. We're we're walking around the world. Yeah, this is still building because not everyone is on stage yet. Right. Now you only have not one even drum not even set. the core band. Yeah. Uh, because yeah. Right. you know we, we we're, we're of course still missing Jerry. Jerry Harrison. Everybody loves Jerry. Well, wow. uh, Jerry Jerry gets some really lovely moments in yeah. this film. He doesn't say a line of dialogue like you never hear him speak but you feel like you know every one of these band members so Mm -hmm. intimately and it is just the way that Demi is able to like capture like I I, I remember um, like there's a point where one of the cameramen kind of looks like one of the guitarists 
in the band. Yeah, yeah. And there was a moment where he's filming the guitarist that looks like himself. Yes. And it looks like he's literally filming himself. It's like, wait, why is Jerry behind the camera? What's going on here? Why is Jerry behind the camera? (laughs) It's so, oh, it's such a beautiful, weird moment. Jerry, again, as we mentioned earlier, was the final member of the band uh, who came back from Harvard to play. He mostly plays keys and rhythm guitar. Mm -hmm. And in Found a Job, we get to start to hear a little bit of what his guitar riffs sound like. I think one of the reasons why this film has sort of the staying power it does is that even though it is not a narrative film, it has a narrative arc. Yeah. And you're starting to see sort of the build and the build and the build to it. What you'll notice during this number is that people in the crowd are really starting to move now. They're they're oh, they're yeah, bop, yeah. they're bopping around. You know, they're 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 bipping and bopping. They're they're feeling good. And there's something too about, oh, this is it, right? This is the completion. These are the four members of Talking Heads. This is mm. what the rest of the show is going to be. Yeah. And then it's not. Uh, yeah. I think there's also a very interesting choice that's made here in the film that they don't uh cut to the audience very much until the very, that's very rare. At all. Yeah. Yeah. You see them in the background when they're like, you know, filming the band on stage from a certain angle and you see them bopping around like you're saying, right. Josh, but there's no close ups of them. No, you're yeah. seeing the backs of their heads. Basically. They couldn't film the audience because they didn't have the lighting and it would have yeah. cost them too much money to do it. So they just went, nah, and it seems like all the really cool artistic decisions were done uh, like that were like done because they just didn't have the money for it because this mm-hmm. was self-financed by Talking Heads. Right. Like they released it under their own label yeah. uh, initially. Concert tours already are something that you tend to do at a loss. Like, uh, right. oh, it, sure. especially in these days that, that I remember, that's one of those things that R.E.M. talked about was that they actually didn't lose money on their tours because they would all stay in like one hotel room at like a right, super but, eight. <laughs> but you're right. Yes. And it's, it's worth noting that the economics of the time and people will still say something like we are touring in support of this album. Yeah, because back in the day you do the tour and then that translates to increased airplay for the yeah. singles as well as sales of the albums. Yeah. Now it's the other way around. But yeah. back then, it, especially with financing a whole movie, what they had to do here was build sort of a minimum viable product using the tools that were available. I think yeah. the cool thing about the crowd in or the crowd shots or lack thereof, though, is that, yes, normally what you get in concert documentaries is those big wide sweeping shots. Yeah. Right. Where it's like, right. here's a bunch of people dancing. You don't see that. But there's something that actually immerses you in it more that you're not seeing them. Instead, you are the audience. You are the stand in. And for me, that's kind of interesting. Yeah. Demi is a very invisible director, right? It's very Mm -hmm. rare to see like a big flourish from him in just about anything that he does. One of the examples of something that is a flourish that I can think of is in Silence of the Lambs when Hannibal Lecter looks straight at the camera. Right. Mm, Right. Usually he he wants to. Uh, remove himself from the situation as much as possible and so stop making sense is a very subjective movie but it's one that is um invisibly uh, subjective it goes the the places where he just naturally looks right Mm -hmm. now it's a wide shot now we're close up now we're doing this Uh, aside from little things like the feet like the the creative choices are not super like Oh, and now he did this. Right. Oh, right. Right. Oh, there's this weird thing that he went backstage and shot. Nope. 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 Yeah. This is this is not West Side Story with that fucking like crane shot that comes out yeah. of the thing. And now we're way up high. Yeah. No, this yeah, is yeah, yeah. it's not interested in doing that. What it's interested in doing is showing the way that this band 
congeals as a band, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Right. In, in Found a Job, there's a, a really cool moment where there's like an instrumental guitar break and they're all just playing and the camera angle is lined up in such a way they are actually behind them rather than in front yeah. of them. And yeah. what you're noticing is from their physical movement and their body language, this is a band that despite all of their uh, <laughs> many well-documented issues, were still incredibly in sync with each other musically. Like yeah. These guys oh, yeah. can jam. Oh, absolutely. Um, and, you know, I think none more so than in that, in the next song, Slippery People. Oh, man, this song fucking rules. Absolutely. I I love call and response songs sort of like as a default, but there's something that's so satisfying about just like these really beautiful like belty moments from the bottom to the top, right? Mm -hmm. That that's contrasted with bird like doing like it's just like very bass tone that you don't really hear a lot in pop music anymore, right? There are no bass baritones. Uh, Notes must only go up as they have in musical theater. (laughs) They do also in pop. And it is uh, it's breathtaking because that contrast just hits you like in all the right ways. Well, and there's one other big piece here, too, which is that visually now the platforms are in place. Yeah, all the platforms that we're going to need. They're locked in. There's a black drop that has now gone down behind everybody. So Mm -hmm. rather than looking at that bare stage wall, we have a curtain. Yeah. Jerry has moved up onto the keys and. We get a brand new guy. So this is Steve Scales. Uh, He does percussion uh, for the entirety of the rest of this concert. Mm -hmm. Uh, He starts out on the bongos and slippery people. He is also then joined by two backup singers, uh, Lynn Mabry and Edna Holt, who are having the time of their lives. They are so talented. (laughs) Like, oh, my God, they're they're having a great time. And they're also their harmonies are perfect every single time. And they're doing incredibly complex choreography like uh i don't know if y'all saw american utopia uh mm-hmm. that david byrne did um that was filmed by spike lee, spike lee who, I th- yeah. who i think is uh along with jonathan demi like one of the greatest um filmers of live performance yes. that i've ever seen yeah because his yep. his film yeah. of passing strange is unbelievable and yeah uh, because it's Spike Lee, there are touches that draw your attention to Spike Lee doing something that, you know, well, he's making just a Spike state. Lee. Yeah. Yeah. He's making a joint. Yeah. Yeah. He's mm-hmm. making a Spike Lee joint. It's just it happens to be a stage show. And mm-hmm. I think that uh, Jonathan Demi doesn't draw his attention to it. But I do think that he is also able to capture the live stage experience by actually not just presenting it. Right. Mm-hmm. And then the fact that it. He he creates a movie out of the concert in a way that a lot of other concert movies are just here is the concert. Yeah. Right. Well, he and, is actively making it into a different thing. And what you can see when when that black curtain comes down is that there is a screen on it. They're not projecting anything mm-hmm. on it just yet, uh, mm-hmm. but it is a cinematic screen. It is a wide uh, set and it makes the whole stage kind of follow that shape of that very wide rectangle. So it starts to become a cinematic feeling concert. Yes. Yes. The shape is now defined in a way that it was not before, mm-hmm. yeah. um, which, again, is why David Byrne was also so specific about like we need neutral tones for this in terms of the costuming, because that then contrasts with the black uh, platforms, the black drop behind and all of that. 
this is actually a deeper and richer sound than this song has on Speaking in Tongues. The backup singers are providing extra musical depth to it. Uh, The really live sound of Steve Scales on those bongos, uh, along with Chris France's drums, is adding a sonic texture to the rhythm side of things. Right. And one of the things that I think is so cool about Stop Making Sense is that in most cases, these songs are straight upgrades over the original recordings. And I like the studio recordings a lot. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's it's a great album just to throw on, and you actually get to hear stuff that's not in Stop Making Sense. Like at one point, they do take an intermission, and you hear mm-hmm. David Burns like, "Oh, we're gonna take a little break." But you know, th- that's another thing is that the banter in this uh, is very minimal, mm-hmm. right? It's not like a lot of bands like to tell anecdotes in between. Yeah, there's, How there's, you there's doing Los Angeles. <laughs> it's, it's one yeah. song straight to the next song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I think that is because David Burns' mind is actually more akin. To that of a musical theater writer than it is of a traditional sort of pop group mm-hmm. uh, mentality, because I would argue that this is a musical that yeah. if if you wanted to, you could sit down and track the story of the titular uh, of the cycle killer at the beginning from his journey from incel to business mogul. Over the course <laughs> of of this entire runtime, and you could make a pretty good argument for it again. Most of this stuff isn't text, right? When David Byrne is even asked about whether he wanted to parody businessmen with the big suit, he usually just goes, eh, I mean, I guess that's there if you want it to be. Yeah, but, no, I know, think he just wanted to wear a really big suit for the most part. Yeah, yeah no, and because well, he went to Japan and he saw a piece of no theater and he's just like, I want that, but for a business suit. Uh, but, you know, it, every time I tried to apply sort of my logical narrative brain to this, I just kept remembering the title. Yeah. And then and then I stopped trying to make sense of it and just went along for the emotional ride of it. And it's so satisfying, especially with the payoff of the next song, Burning Down the House. Yeah. Because, oh, a barn burner of absolutely a, a house burner Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> i can uh, live in my barn <laughs> the way that they build into this barn. is really cool too right because yeah. slippery people closes slippery with people just... sorry i had to do it at some point <laughs> yes they're a slip kaleidoscope they are that. Oh, oh, oh. Slippery people conclude. <laughs> Slippery people. <laughs> With Chris France uh, just fucking slamming on the toms. Before we even get into burning down the house, we are very clearly doing something here with the rhythm to get us into a higher energy mode. Yeah. Yeah. And then everybody else comes in. That's right. There are even more guys. (laughs) Uh, We get uh, Bernie Worrell, uh, originally from Parliament Funkadelic. Yeah. Uh, He has joined on the keys so that Mm -hmm. Jerry can go back to being on rhythm guitar. Uh, And we've also got Alex Weir, who then plays lead electric guitar for the remainder of the concert. Yeah. And... They all come on. The band is now truly 100% complete. We hear the famous uh, guitar opening, just a little bit of picking. Bernie starts to go up and down on the keyboard, you know, and it's like, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? And everything just explodes.
was the number one hit off of the album that they're touring. And uh, it's the one everyone's kind of been waiting for. Right. Right. Because they they throw them off the scent a little bit because Psycho mm-hmm. Killer was their, like their previous, like most well-known song. And Byrne gets it out of the way immediately. And it's right. an acoustic version of right. it. Right. So now people are off kilter. They don't know what to expect of this thing. And what they get is a longer, more bombastic rendition of their big hit, Burning Down the House. Yes. My first exposure to this song was on Home Improvement, and that version does not do this song justice. <laughs> it's pretty no, good, good man, Taylor. It's, fun. <laughs> it's pretty good. <laughs> yeah, Brian. Brian, how did this version compare to you, uh, to, 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 to the Home Improvement version? Did it top the Home Improvement version or not? Uh, I mean, the Home Improvement one is, is so firmly just like, in in long term memory, I haven't watched that episode in a very long time. Even when I was right. forcing AJ to watch a whole lot of Home Improvement for the sake of a YouTube video that'll never be made. Um, yeah, uh, they. Uh, I mean, I, I do love the use of non traditional instruments. I am a big sucker for things like power tools being used to create percussive uh, Got it. melodies. So, but no, no, no. So I that, mean, that, like that's the, your that's your that's your note here for uh, for 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 David. For Byrne David was like, Byrne you, is like, yeah, maybe maybe David Byrne should try being weird for a change. Sure. Yeah. 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 Like Tim Allen. Like, t- yeah, yeah. Like, like <laughs> the avant-garde comedian <laughs> slash actor Tim Allen. Perhaps David Byrne should stop making sense. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. Mm. Uh, there, there is something. Actually, what's weird about watching that home improvement version of Burning Down the House is that it does feel weirdly talking heads. Yeah. Which is such an odd thing for a comedian as conservative as Tim I mean, Allen. It's still, to it's like, still very pandering. Like, you know, Tim sure. Allen is always going to, like, make a face or whatever right like he literally would just right. grunt when people didn't laugh at his jokes and then that just became his main bit was just going all together Ooh. now Ooh. uh i don't think so josh but um <laughs> <laughs> but so there is a there are, there's a lot of mugging in that and 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 uh, talking heads are far more interested in being their own thing, right? David yeah. Byrne moves very earnest, in his own way. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. There is no winking to the camera. I don't think it. Any no, point there's never a wink. No, there's there's very nope. much a like we're coming in here and this is our personality deal. With there it. is some direct eye contact with the camera. Yeah, there is. <laughs> oh, a, there is everyone. A there is a there are some really fun moments of just like, oh, the camera's right there. I'm going to stick out yeah. my tongue or whatever. Yeah. But it's not. Yeah, you're right. It's not cute. It's not like, no, we, we're just here to put on a show. Yeah. And if the camera is capturing me in a given moment, maybe maybe I'll, you know, that I am noticing in this moment while I am playing that I have the opportunity to add a small flourish. Mm-hmm. I'm going to do that. That's very different from the fucking, you know, home improvement. It's, I'm, it's, I'm looking out and I'm winking at it's you. It's not the, the constant like desperation that Tim Allen has, which you can always no. see like in his line reading. I mean, like watch the Santa Claus sometimes. And it's always like it's always like he's made a joke and then he's like looking over at right. you to make sure that you laugh at it. Like, did you get it? Did you get the joke that I made? And then go back. Uh, yeah, you know what? Is One of those that. jokes impossible to get. He calls, he refers to himself as Papa Shisho, which is a, uh, which is a reference, I thought, to what Italians called Santa Claus. Okay. Turns out, no, it's referencing a bit, uh, I believe on the Ed Sullivan show, where there yeah, was a that's, little puppet. Yeah, that's the Ed puppet. Sullivan voice, yeah. Yeah, there was a little puppet that 
I guess was Santa's helper. Okay. Who would uh, Ed Sullivan would often go Papa Shisho to summon this thing, and so like you watch, it's you for watch the boomers. Santa it's Claus. For the boomers. You watch it's the also Santa for Claus. Brian. It's specifically <laughs> for Brian. Brian was like, "I want a really great show here. We got uh, Talking Heads, uh, David Byrne, Talking Heads, really, here. really uh, talented guy. Uh, my 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 Ed Sullivan. It's just that, Jimmy, Jimmy Stewart. Stewart. No, it's, it's <laughs> more, you get, he's, he's he's more in the sinuses, and he's very he doesn't want to be on camera. That's the weird thing oh. about Ed Sullivan." Oh. Oh, like, Papo, he, he's, he's always kind of sweaty. His eyes are closed. Uh, his <laughs> his his arms are heavy, uh, and he's had his knees arm, weak. Yeah. Palms yeah. are sweaty. He's, he's <laughs> such an interesting guy. There's there's a clip of Ed Sullivan when uh, the cast of Hair comes on to perform Age of Aquarius, and then everyone like festoons him with flowers at the end and like obviously festoons. oh yeah he is he is fully festooned and being like felt up by these like 20 year old musical theater hippie girls i and, love getting festooned yeah well and it's he probably one of my does things to do he probably does too but he never mm. ever looked like he actually wanted to be there which was somehow part of i guess his charm uh on tv working up beyond ed sullivan yeah <laughs> Thank you, Paul. thanks paul <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, it's like Robin Williams doing two, count them, two William F. Buckley impersonations in Aladdin. <laughs> you know, sometimes things just aren't for you, AJ. They're for you know me. What? That's true. That is true. They're, that is for you. I mean, the William F. Buckley impression is also for me. So it covers there, two Yeah, there French. have to be a couple of provisos, a little bit of quid pro quo. But uh, I think just to pull it back to sort of Jesus. this moment in Stop Making Sense, you know, yeah. this is the opposite of the wink, the nudge. This is so yeah. self-assured. Yeah. They yeah. knew that when they got to this point in the concert, that they would have everybody on board in that this sort of like bringing the, the, the live band to a state of completion and then just I, pop, oh, hold on into Ong's hat would, they just knew that this would work. And of course it does. Yeah. 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 It like gangbusters. Like I, the note I took here was like, this is an example of burn creating an environment of joyous creation and full human expression. Yeah. I mean, look how f- much fun everyone is having. Yes. Right. At my showing too, this was when everybody actually got up on their feet and would, and of no. course did not sit down for the rest of the show. Uh, yeah. I saw it at BAM uh, a couple weeks ago. And it's amazing how like fresh and alive this still feels. Right. And, and the restoration is fucking gorgeous. Beautiful. Beautiful. Like it, it is, it is so crystal clear. It looks like it was shot like yesterday, if not for like what it cuts <laughs> to the crowd and everyone's very clearly in the eighties, like perms. a sconce. Yeah. All <laughs> the perms. The all, jerry all, curls. Yeah. All the, all, all the jeans with the Cosby sweaters like it is it is such a very specific time but it has this timelessness about it particularly when it is just focused on the stage and 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 what and what are they getting joyous about right they're getting joyous about burning down the house it's about burning down the establishment this is the sort of psycho killer idea from the beginning but like instead of being like twitchy and neurotic it is like how can we find joy in the destruction of the terror of the world burning around us yeah and this is this is also where it's probably where worth mentioning that like this is a i think a very gen x expression of these sensibilities right oh hell yeah cusping boomer gen x i guess you would put them in that category but like there is this thing about like okay you are asking for a revolution but what will that actually look like and if there's something that maybe frustrates me about a lot of stuff from this period it's Mm -hmm. that They, they made some incredible work and changed the shape of music forever But at the same time, 
this change in artistic sensibility didn't really have anything to offer from a more structural perspective. And maybe that's a stupid thing to want from mm. music. I don't know. Here's here's my hottest take. I think this is Candide. <laughs> I think I think maybe this movie is just Candide. It's a hapless somebody who believes uh, it's actually kind of the inverse of Candide. It is not the best of all possible worlds. Perhaps. Oh, oh, it is oh. the worst of all possible worlds. Oh. It is someone who goes out into the world assuming the worst and wanting to destroy it. And then over the course of it, we get introduced to all sort of the problems of modern society, right? In little vignettes, we get stuff like slippery people Mm -hmm. and found a job, which is just about, you know, finding a job. But then, you know, the rage that you get about actually confronting the world in burning down the house, you get things like life during wartime, where Mm -hmm. it's a list of grievances about like all the shit that's wrong with the modern world. And at the end of it, you get a guy who is fundamentally changed, but he is changed because he has found this community of people to make this art with. And that's sort of, I think, hmm. where it differs from Candide, which is a much more tragic, I think, story right. uh, at the end of it all. But this is this. I think when we t- want to talk about Stop Making Sense for the podcast, I'm like, God, you know, I love this movie, but how does it fit into the ethos of our aesthetic? And it turns out it's literally the title of our podcast. <laughs> this is Gen X's The Worst of All Possible Worlds. Yeah, I think continuing on the the journey, I guess, here, the, the journey that you had mentioned, AJ, of moving through the worst of all possible worlds. Once you burn down the house, you have to deal with the consequences of that. Right. This happens in this concert with the song Life During Wartime. This is the grooviest song about living in a post-apocalyptic environment I think I have ever heard. Uh-huh. Um, it is also a straight upgrade again over the original um, on oh, Fear of Music, which is nowhere. It's it's it, the original is much shorter and it's much less groovy. This is also where we get some of David's most famous moves, you know, yeah. sort of the, the, the wiggly worm thing that he does mm-hmm. yeah. uh, lying on the floor, the jogging in place. We get what I can only describe as a lot of like weirdly sensual close ups of the act of making music like Oh, Bernie sure. Worrell is like it, uh, so sweaty and he is like looking like he's having half an orgasm on while well, he's playing the keys on this one. Jerry similarly is is just like they're both pour, pouring themselves so immensely into the making of the music. And that is happening as this sort of jogging is occurring right in front of them up on the stage. Yeah. And I don't know. It's so physical. It's so kinetic. It's so exciting. I also love the way he pronounces Detroit, Detroit. But I was listening to this song. I'm like, this this sounds incredibly familiar to me. Like, uh, particularly the line, this ain't no party. This ain't no disco. You know, th- that whole bit. And I was like, why does it sound familiar? And then I realized, unfortunately, that they sampled this in High Fidelity, the musical. No. Uh, yeah. Uh, at one point, the entire ensemble goes, this ain't no party. This ain't no coconuts. <laughs> and I, no, no. Yeah, yeah. This ain't uh, no coconuts. Yeah. I, I guess because they're describing the last real record store on Earth. And I guess coconuts is a record store. I don't know. There's a lyric in this that really that really spoke to me. Um, And it was about sort of survival 
surviving an apocalypse, right? What do you do when the world around you is burning? And it said, burned all my notebooks. What good are notebooks? They won't help me survive. Mm -hmm. My chest is aching and it burns like a furnace. The burning keeps me alive. God, that's evocative. And it's so telling of like a talking heads lyric, right? It is so poetical and it doesn't a hundred percent make logical sense, but like the feeling and emotion behind it hits you like a fucking yeah. train. These feelings will of course continue. This is, this is where they took the break in the uh, actual concert. So I feel like we should take our break here as well. Yeah. And you know, as we go into the break, we're just, I think we're just left with, with a bunch of questions. Mm. Like what good are notebooks? What good are notebooks? But also questions. Oh no. And you may find yourself standing in the Egyptian desert and you may find yourself taking out a sizable loan. And you may find yourself in charge of a multifaceted construction project. And you may find yourself in Egyptian court with a cease and desist. And you may tell them all, well, what can you do? Praise be the Shay go by, let the spiders all rain down. Oh, the great Shay go by, let them flow up from the ground, building a ziggurat next to the Nile's waters, building a lifeline for my ancient spider god. And you may find yourself still in that same courtroom, and you may hear them asking, do you have the right permits? And you may answer back, I didn't realize I needed them. And they will grimly nod, yeah, you kinda do. Filling out paperwork, form 2A in duplicate. Filling out paperwork, trying not to throw a fit. Building a ziggurat next to the Nile's waters. You'll need a lifeline, or in paperwork you'll drown. You must initial here, you must initial here. You must initial here. You must initial here. You must initial here. Don't forget to initial here. You must initial here. You must initial here. Let's talk about zoning. Can't forget about zoning. Cause there is water flooding the foundation. Remove the water. There's just more water. Removing the water. From the base of the structure Mourning the employees All that water made them drown Dodging the employment fees Means the union's coming down Into the red again After that money's gone Take out a banking loan For that water underground Praise be to Shay go by Who will be worth the interest rates Oh only Shay go by This spider temple will be great Into the web again After you've trapped us all a sticky lifeline in our gooey holy gowns you may ask yourself why am i trapped in the web you may ask yourself how many spiders is too many and you may ask yourself are we people or are we food and you may scream to yourself my god what have i done letting her read your brain as her webbings are unfurled letting me take the she takes over the world Building the ziggurat Next 
to the Nile's waters was such a huge mistake. God, someone save me from myself. Unleashing Shay, go by. Oh my God, she's got Japan. Fear the great Shay, go by. She'll devour every man into the shit again. After the world's devoured, throw us a lifeline so we can begin again. Oh God! Oh, there's so many spiders! Oh! Oh, why did I do this? Uh, you know, this really says a lot about society. I was literally walking down the street yesterday and we passed uh, by like a young 20 something couple like yeah. NYU kids fresh uh-huh. faced and the guy literally said to the girl, "You know, we live in a society." <laughs> full sincerity, full throated. And I was yes. just like, "What? I need to get out of NYU. I need to like, I need to physically you leave did this that. space." You already did that. Did I, Josh? <laughs> did I? I don't know, you tell me. When I was just a young uh, freshman film student, I decided to write the most film student line that I could think of, uh-huh. like, oh, write, sure. make the most film student scene possible. And so it was these yeah. two guys sitting together and one guy just said, do you ever think about things? <laughs> and the other guy said, yes. And then started to cry. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm talking about, Brian. Brian that's fucking gorgeous. I, it was done in one, uh, one shot, and we did, I think, thirty takes of it because we kept breaking. It was very unprofessional, the atmosphere on that set. But yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> well, sounds fun though. Yeah, we're 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 getting into the part of stop making sense that really says a lot about society. Uh, oh hell is, yeah, we do. It does think about things. Making flippy floppy. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Which uh, about the career of John Kerry? Hey, yeah. Am I, am I okay? <laughs> let's fucking yes, yes, dude. Let's go. Yes, that waffling ass motherfucker. His time has finally come. Here's the thing. I was in a very small cluster of people in San Diego mm. that voted for Kerry. Mm-hmm. We were a pro karyotic cell. And damn. Wow. No, you brought it home. You brought it home. That's really good. Thank you. I wrote that joke, no kidding, when I was 17 years old. That was it. Yeah. You carry out Excel? You? Yeah, I I carry out Excel. <laughs> I carry out Excel wrote that joke when I was when I was but a, a 17-year-old incel. That's not true. Yeah. I was very popular. Uh but Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. Whoa. What up? Mr. What Popularity up? over here with his fucking horse cane here yeah. to tell us about how yeah. No, no, that was college. Horse cane was college. Uh that's when I got got not so popular. And, but but high school, oh man. Let AJ me was you. like I need these girls Rules to stop school. to stop jumping on my dick so much. How do I how do I alienate them? Horse cane. <laughs> I need rest. I need I need to slumber. <laughs> These women leaping into my bed. I feel like at this point, David Byrne was at the peak of his powers. And yeah. I would imagine he had women wanting to leap into his bed at all. I'm sure times. he still does. Yeah. Well, well, Josh, I don't mean to blow up your spot, but Josh and I were at a bar a couple weeks ago and there was a there was a, a very attractive uh, <laughs> person who came up to Josh and said, you look like David Byrne as a very clear come online. And I was like, yeah, Bosch got that Riz. Uh, 
Yes. And that's no. when Josh no. looked me in the eyes oh my God. and said, you must oh never say that word again. <laughs> that's true. It's nice that you guys hang all out with each other. All of that is true. AJ did not <laughs> embellish that story at all, and I it makes me so upset. As, as we learned on the lads cast... AJ never embellishes. Never. If anything, he removes details. <laughs> I want to talk a little bit here about making Flippy Floppy in Ooh. Stop Making Sense mm. because visually, this is one of the yeah. most memorable moments where they've got these projections. Yeah, this right? is where they finally yes. like. This is the full complete image when they come back yes. from the break. And I didn't know the break went here, but it kind of makes sense because the film sort of just cuts to images of projections first, and then comes back to the the whole stage. And right, we right. have three slide projectors on the screen and they all it just show like different words. Yep. Yeah. Diamond <laughs> video game sandwich, man. <laughs> Makes you think. This was very memorably parodied in Final Transmission, uh, which is season two, episode five of Documentary Now, That's where right. Fred Armisen is basically David Byrne. Uh, yeah. you've, got, you've got Bill Hader in there with the fucking blue shirt. He's yep. wearing the same blue shirt that Chris France wears and it's not making sense. And yeah. the, the, the the words that they have up on the projections are even goofier yeah. than is the case in Stop it, Making It's so sense. funny but, that like Demi is a pretty prolific documentarian. He's not necessarily known as a documentarian. And yet two of his documentaries were parodied on documentary now because he also <laughs> did uh, Swimming to Cambodia. Yes. Yes, he did. <laughs> yes. And that's that's probably my favorite episode of documentary now is that Swimming to Cambodia parody, uh, which also star stars Bill Hader. But there's something um, about that documentary now parody that I think is very lovely, which is that talking heads love it. Like, oh, I'm not literally uh, like Byrne was just like, I am flabbergasted by the amount of detail that you mm. put into this parody. And it is just a very good rockumentary. Like when you watch when you watch that parody, like it's I don't know if it's there are parts of it that are very funny, but for the most part, it's just very good music. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I, I don't know that musically it ever quite reaches the level of Talking Heads, but there's oh, a couple no, songs no. that are pretty good. The baseline for making Flippy Floppy reminds me, gives me like real thriller vibes. David Byrne screams, we are born without sin, right? Mm -hmm. We're back in the fucking sermon uh, mode of this. And this is something I did want to talk to both of you about, having mm. grown up more in the Christian sphere of things. Uh, how how much of that do you feel was an influence on this particular concert film? Like, did you ever get sort of flashbacks uh, uh, oh, church? To your, to, uh, to, of church, but also to just like listening to Christian music in general? My pastor, oh. My pastor did wear a large suit. But he was he was kind of a big man. Oh, yeah. did it fit him or was it was it yeah, a true I mean, big it fit him. I mean, you know, the 90s, the shoulder pads were all the rage. But but, you know, oh, sure. <laughs> Still, the suit was big. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. I I didn't really feel a strong sense of that in here. Um, personally, at least it, it didn't resonate with what I experienced in that tradition. But that also is because. 
the tradition I was raised in was so austere. We didn't do a lot of yelling. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. sure. They, uh, they so. just walked around with buckles on their hats, <laughs> wooden shoes. The only time they ever had any. Are we any... bringing the bit from Lad's Cast Yes, we are. Into yes, this we episode? are. If you want to hear oh, more God, about oh, God. Lad's Cast bits, uh, because the only color that they're allowed to have in the Netherlands, uh, or, or by extension, Iowa and Michigan, uh, is, yeah. is brick red. And mm-hmm. whatever color a tulip happens to be for two weeks. Right. And then it goes away. Everything else has to be the color of their pastries. Beige <laughs> and black because sometimes you burn them because you get too involved in something. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Perhaps staging West Side Story. Yes. No, or, God damn it. Or, or reading the scriptures. <laughs> uh, but, ju- but just to like really like talk a bit more about the visuals and the projections. Right. Yeah. It's these big red boxes. Yeah. And mm-hmm. within these red boxes are white text. And, and you know, the, it's lots of different things that really say a lot about society. Yeah. Eventually, about, they're you know? blue. Yeah. They're blue later. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, which is very fitting because they briefly do assassins in this song. Yeah. Uh, there's a little bit of the uh, hail to the chief that's sort yes. of like, like that uh, kind of fades out a little bit. Which is that is yeah. some wonderful work on the keys there. Once again, by Bernie Worrell, who mm-hmm. I think lends this version of the song a very dissonant and weird quality right Mm, yeah the song is so upbeat and it's so funky and yet when the the synthesizers come in here it's always like what 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 what? Like, what yeah. the fuck is going on? Uh, this is also the song that introduces the concept of the big suit uh, that will then be paid off a little bit later. Uh, it is, in this is a theoretical the big suit. The conceptual uh, big suit. This is this is this is a little bit uh, lengthier of a lyric quote, but it goes a little something like this. I can't believe it. And people are strange. Our president's crazy. Did you hear hear what what he he said? said? Business and pleasure lie right to your face. Divide it in sections and then give it away. There are no big secrets. Don't believe what you read. Got great big bodies. Got great big heads. Run a run a run it all together. Check it out. Still don't make no sense. Making flippy floppy. Trying to do my best. Lock the door. We kill the beast kill it and i want to talk a little bit about that sentiment and how extremely gen x it is yeah yeah because the idea is that the world is crazy the more you look at it the less sense it makes and if you stare at it too long you will become a part of that abyss right Mm -hmm. so the best thing that you can do is to lock the door blot it out all out and in that way you don't give it oxygen and you kill the flame you kill it, which I think is in such stark opposition to how we as millennials. And I think I don't want to speak for for the Zoomers, mostly because they, I do. I, I, I'm going to speak will, for I to say Riz I, and I'm shot down. No, I am them. So I will. Oh, you are. Yes, <laughs> Josh, you, 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 uh, you bridge the divide between us. Um, I am the Rizzler and I know the score. <laughs> but there is such a <laughs> from square one. I'll be risen. I finally got one. Yeah. yeah. You're risen all 64. Fuck you, Josh. <laughs> It's usually reserved for AJ. (laughs) Yeah. But it is such a stark contrast to how I think we are conditioned to do things. We have to bear witness, right? Our whole thing is we must witness history in its real time, deal with it, and process it because that is sort of the best way to live in our society. But Gen X, obviously the completely different view. Everything's fucked up, man. Shut the door. Make your art. And I, I just think that's a very interesting Perspective that I want y'all's thoughts on. Well, I would say that I think Gen X had the opportunity to kill the beast and blew it. And 
this is not to do like generational warfare here. Like I, I, I can't, I can't blame fully that generation for what happened. But at the same time, you know, if we were going to address climate change, if we were going to address the rap- rapidly increasing uh, wealth and income inequality and things like that, many of those things had the opportunity to get arrested uh, in the 80s. What was happening was they were witnessing the beginning of this and not really knowing how to stop it. Mm. Because, you know, Reaganomics, our president's crazy. You hear what he said. Like, that's a direct reference to Ronald Reagan, obviously. Mm -hmm. And so this is seeing these things coming into place, but not yet having a language to articulate what is going on and also lacking because we were so fucking opposed to, you know, the Soviets and anything resembling socialism, not having the toolkit to deal with it meaningfully. And so right. all you get is signaling. And what's so interesting is that that's what's happening in the song, too. We have yeah. big words up behind us that are referring to things, but semantically don't really mean anything. And yeah. it's sort of a commentary, but it's also not sharp enough to mean anything. And so it just sort of gets flattened into an aesthetic paste for me, at least. And I say that as yep. somebody who really likes the aesthetic, too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's a very pleasing aesthetic, but it is it basically boils down to we live in a society, don't we? And it's like, yeah. And, you know, the thing about our president's crazy. Did you hear what he said? I think one of the reasons why this thing feels like it was like, you know, obviously right from the headlines is because that's always going to be true of any yeah, president. That, we that's ever what have it feels like ever. to me is that it's almost like a parody of the of the notion. Right. Mm. Pr- president's crazy. Right. Did you hear what that president right. said? Right. Right. Unnamed right. president. The, the current looks like those clowns, those clowns in, Congress in Congress did it again. Yeah. Watch a bunch of clowns. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like saying that the mayor of New York City uh, might be a little unhinged. Right? <laughs> like it's always that's always going to be true. Yeah. Forever. But it's more so now than before. <laughs> oh, wait. No. Are you saying? that our mayor speaking directly to God like the Pope is a worrying sign. It, it I think turns out he was speaking to God less than he was speaking to Erdogan. Uh, <laughs> Allegedly. Allegedly. <laughs> what is it? Okay, what is it with all of our politicians being in the pocket of Turkey and Azerbaijan? I don't know. Everyone's, you know, uh, Bri- like, Brian, it's almost Thanksgiving. Yeah. We're all in the pocket <laughs> of like, Turkey. Like people, yeah, that's true. Um, people are, you know, the, you get the anti Semitic conspiracy theories, and it's like people don't really understand, especially like with Israel right now. The thing that, you know, that people think about Israel, oh, it's like, oh, Israel is like controlling American politics. Uh 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 uh. No, we, we helped create this thing. It is right. our own. No, it's project. an American client state. And, yeah, 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 exactly. And no, yeah. the, the countries that are apparently actually controlling our politicians are right. fucking Turkey and, and Azerbaijan. <laughs> a different set oh, of yeah, people well, doing a different... Don't forget the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. The Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, Arabia, Kingdom of Saudi Arabia as well. Arabia. That one, at least, I mean, they all have oil, I guess. But like Saudi Arabia, at least, is like, okay, this is the big capital of OPEC, essentially. Uh, Azerbaijan has a lot of oil. Turkey is like just fucking turkey like maybe spend some of that money domestically i don't know <laughs> like why is this all going to some guy in new jersey it's going to some guy in new jersey yeah he's got gold bars in his <laughs> yeah. backyard those those are egyptian i, I misspoke on that one but uh, and yeah. and I, my understanding he's placing those bars in ong's hat mm. <laughs> oh no yeah. <laughs> The thing about Ong's hat that mm. I think frustrates me the most uh, yeah. is when I'm really <laughs> got AJ that time. Is- no, no, I just need the listener to know. Josh is like, I'm going to clear this. I'm going to clear this. So the thing about the joke I just made. 
good. No, I, I, it I think, is. It was great. I think when I'm in Ong's hat too much, I find myself in a bit of a swamp. Lights on. a song where uh, Talking Heads decides to release all of their best gremlin voices. Uh, uh, David Byrne brings back his Scottish accent, kind of? Yeah, it's when a, he does his goblin? This is easily my least favorite song. <laughs> and, and maybe I, that Talking Heads has ever done. Uh, wow, I, ever. I, maybe not ever, I, but certainly in Stop Making Sense. I don't like this song. I don't really like the way it's staged. I think it's kind of fun in the sense of like, Byrne is doing something weird performance-wise. Yeah, but I don't like it. But it sounds like you, AJ, you agree, you disagree with me pretty strong. I, I no, no, I, I think it's fine. I think it's, I think it's silly, which is sure. fun. Um, uh, but you know, it has lyrics like "Watch out, touch monkeys," and it's like, what, what's happening? What, what are we doing? What, what is, is anyone doing? What is this? Is this, is this one of AJ's famous interstitials from the worst of all possible worlds I mean, podcast? I mean, I, honestly, I, what I what I wrote was "Watch out, touch monkeys" is genuinely just good advice. Um, <laughs> it's no, but, no, uh, no. It's actually pretty bad advice. It's not good like, advice. No, you Don't should touch at monkeys. least wash your hands afterwards. Yeah, that's that, that was one thing. That's one thing I remember from yeah. from being in Zimbabwe. Was they were like, "Don't, mm. don't touch the monkeys. Don't let the monkeys touch you." <laughs> <laughs> this song actually gave way to a meme that just went around Twitter uh, yes. a couple months ago uh, where it was uh, when you ask Pikachu what his favorite Tom Cruise movie is. And he says, yeah, no, it's this song is kind of a swamp. Yeah. It's, you know, it's it's nice to look at, but, you know, ultimately it's not one you really want to fuck to. No, it, you know, we downshift back up. We downshift back up. Yeah, we do. We, we, do, we, that. Sh- we do that yeah, sometimes. We are, I am always doing this. Well, sometimes, yeah, downshifting um, helps you climb a mountain better, right? Yeah. Yeah. Into What a Day That Was, which is actually a David Byrne song. Um, This is not a Talking Heads song. This was oh. a solo David Byrne track. Mm. And here's a little bit of what the original sounds like. And don't you dare stick out. Here's what the Talking Heads version sounds like. much better and what's interesting to me about this is that you know obviously it's it i think it's a cool song i think it stands up in a really beautiful way i love the way it's shot with these again extreme close-ups except for the instrumental parts alex weir is doing an extraordinary job on slide guitar here but i also think it points to this thing of like man i i like david Byrne a lot as an individual artist 
But there is something about the magic that he was able to create with his bandmates Mm -hmm. that just takes it to the next level. And it's so it's so incredible. And it's also so unfortunate that they were at each other's throats so much because the (laughs) music they made was so good. And and it was, I think, so much more than the sum of its individual parts. You know, this song to me, uh, I I, I, musically, I think I think it it doesn't really strike me very much, but I think it's very interesting lyrically. Um, It sounds to me like a make America great again speech. Actually, Uh, it's a we used to be great and we can have that again. But this one makes it a lot more explicit that the only way to have that again, to like find your way back to that Americana that does not exist is through violence. Mm -hmm. Right. That inevitably the only way that you can preserve that thing in Amber is to kill is through war, violence, bloodshed. And that the only way backward is through that violence. It's a very interesting turning point, I think in the actual movie itself too because it is we see echoes of what our protagonist in david byrne will slowly become the big suited guy right Right. this is sort of the embodiment of the system it's him falling in love with the idea of well i'm not happy now the world is on fire maybe we should go back to a thing that never existed and there's also this remarkable thing where they are using these lights under the the performers to cast this very strange like mm-hmm. ghostly look in the extreme yeah. close up here on David Byrne's face he he looks almost like a fucking alien and these are lights that are being held by stagehands these are not just like footlights on the on the front of the stage and so th- this this effect even gets expanded upon where they move around to get the shadows projected on the back screen as as the concert progresses they become quite literally larger than life The shadows Mm -hmm. that are cast onto that big backdrop, you know, they are so much taller than they really are. They are figures rather than people. And you're no longer just watching people play music. You are watching them sort of be transformed into these larger than life characters, maybe you could say. I don't know. It's it's, it's cool. And then what's also wild is that just as you're so sure that it's going to keep going down this direction, it slams on the brakes again and goes back in the opposite direction for a very intimate number, which is, this must be the place. This song feels like a national anthem to me. Uh, what a day that was, was a longing for that past. This is sort of like, okay, so let's try and build up a state around that. And I think that this is sort of that rallying cry. It is the optimism of a nation coming into its own. Mm. Also, the lyric, hi sing into my mouth, feels like a lyric I would write for an evil snake monster in one of the mm. inter- interstitials mm. of, of this show. Okay. It was interesting you called me out earlier for it, but this one feels more like... Uh, my vibe and even in this thing it's called this must be the place naive melody and mm-hmm. even in a song called naive melody there's just this wonderful sense of mischief and danger yeah underneath the surface of it this is also the talking head song that has ultimately found the most like long-term presence in the culture this must mm. be the place is gonna be like fucking there will be a neon sign saying this must be the place at every fucking chuggy ass bar you've ever gone to. It is an unfortunate like millennial 
<laughs> you want to talk about like millennial ass shit. Being a millennial is a thing on your wall that says this must be the place. And then directly under it, you have something that says adulting is hard. Now, where's my coffee? I don't know why, though, because I think that there is more to this song than that. You know? Yeah. I think it is a beautiful musing on like what it means to have somebody else who you really, truly care about and sure. find the world in that person. He Fred Astaire's a fucking lamp. <laughs> He's so happy. He's so yeah. happy to be dancing with this lamp. I would say that David Byrne, uh, in the theater business, we would refer to him as a mover, not a dancer necessarily. Yes. But usually when people say that, it is derogatory. But I, I mean it as as such a, a positive attribute because he brings such a weird eccentricity to his movement he, that I don't think you would get if you were a He has dancer. his own mm-hmm. movement, right? Like if he were, he couldn't yeah. get a job as a dancer doing someone else's choreography, but but he has a very distinctive style that he will stick with. Yeah, and we saw this earlier too, right? During Life During War time where he has that like wiggly worm move. That's mm-hmm. like one of his iconic things, you know? Yeah, yeah, Not yeah. a lot of people can move like that. Mm-hmm. I can uh, because I'm a quirked up white boy with a little bit of swag. But, uh, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm built different. The scourge of Brooklyn bars. <laughs> Josh walks in and all those people, they, they're like, is that David Byrne? And like, throw themselves at his feet. And man. I'm like, no, I just, I, I just know how to wiggle. You know, and then he wiggles and oh, my mm-hmm. God, the noises. It's like if Conrad Birdie had just mm. walked into a bar, Uh-oh. you know, if, if, <laughs> and then everyone looked to Conrad Birdie and said, is that David Byrne? And then he said, Ooh. no, I'm Conrad Birdie. It would be just like if Frank Sinatra walked into a bar and then people mm. said, is that David Byrne? And he said, no, mm. it's Frank Sinatra. It's just like if Franz Liszt walked into a bar oh, no. and then everyone at the bar oh, no. was oh, like, no. hey, is oh, that no. David Byrne? And Franz Liszt would be like, mm. no, I'm Josh Borman. And they'd be like, who's that? He's, he's the guy wearing Ong's hat. <laughs> <laughs> is that where the bit was going? I like AJ? that you, I, I liked, I liked that you did the, uh, the Wojak yes. point there again, Brian. I, well, you <laughs> were behind you, Franz Liszt and so he was pointing you out. Right, no, it, it, yeah. Wojak pointed yeah. me. Absolutely, absolutely. When This Must Be The Place finishes, now we hear a very famous arpeggiated synth line and if you know Talking Heads, you know what this is. This is Once In A Lifetime. wearing his famous glasses. He's doing the thing with his arm from the fucking music video. This yep. is uh, really just straight up doing the thing as opposed to trying to transform it in any meaningful way. I think, you know, I'm curious to hear what you guys thought about this, because for me, I I like this. Obviously, I love this song. Right. It does not impress me in the way that the rest of this movie does because of the fact that it isn't trying anything transformational, although I understand why that was the case. It, what it accomplishes live is that it becomes the sermon that it was always meant to be. Sure. Like it, it, do, it genuinely feels like you see the way that Byrne does the choreography for this. It looks like he's talking in tongues, right? It was based off of uh, church services and like uh, uh, sort of the Pentecostal performative, like reaching up to God, like sure. God, channeling God through your body. It's a man reckoning with his life and it asks all the questions 
that I think you do end up asking at a certain point in your life. And some of these questions I've started asking myself, some I listen to this song and I'm like, 10 years from now, I'm going to be asking all of these questions. Mm. Like this is like midlife crisis, the song, right? Yeah. But I I think more importantly, at least in terms of my understanding of this sort of arc of the narrative is if, if we, if we've had sort of, um, the the yearning for the past that never was and we have sort of the ideal national anthem and this must be the place once in a lifetime is is sort of reaching the turning point for actually how to implement those things like hmm. you've gotten your nation now what it feels to me uh like uh, a bowler hat from so- Stephen Sondheim's specific overtures right it is the moment of looking back at uh, all the choices that you've made in your life up until that point of embracing this change and what has that done to you as yeah. a person? E- even though this is a deeply existential song that I agree, it becomes more resonant as time goes by. He was only 28 when uh, Remain in Light was released. How dare you say this to me? <laughs> I think there was a piece too of me watching this and having a bit of an existential crisis of my own and being like, oh, like during Stop Making Sense, he was my age? Like... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he was my age up there doing this and he had already made some of the most influential pop music of the like late 70s and early 80s. And here I am making a podcast. And look, I, I value the podcast. I think it's great. It's a lot of fun. But at the same time, if you measure yourself based on the uh, accomplishments of others, you're always going to find yourself coming up short. And so there was a weird like self-referential thing to this for me as well sure. uh, especially watching it this time around you know and I, I don't know it just felt very emotionally fraught for me i guess sure but but that's also what david byrne is doing in once in a lifetime right yeah. he yeah. is he is comparing himself to others and finding himself coming up short right you know, i i always think of the simpsons episode where homer becomes an inventor right and he 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 just wants to compete with edison like he just has to uh g- make more inventions than thomas edison and then they visit edison's uh, uh house and you know Thomas Edison stole most of his inventions. Like, let's be real. Like, this is a very... This well, is a very and, and, uh, in addition, he just... He owned a company, and the company right. hired engineers. So it was... It, it, this stuff was invented by multiple people. It's just that Edison got to take the name of right. it. Yeah. He, he, he took, yeah, he got to take the credit for it. So this is a romanticized version of it in The Simpsons, but I always think of that moment where they go to Edison's lab and they because dis- they're trying to steal one of his inventions mm-hmm. or like destroy it so that Homer can then invent it, right? Uh, but then uh, they discover a little thing on, on Edison's wall that compares him with Leonardo da Vinci, mm-hmm. right? And how he hasn't made as many inventions as da Vinci did. So it's it's one of those things that I will, I will never forget that at my... Uh, graduation, uh, Michael Mayer was the speaker and he said something that has really resonated with me, which is if you compare where Pip is in Great Expectations to where Jay Gatsby is in The Great Gatsby based on page number, you would say Gatsby is better off. But when you finish the book, <laughs> you realize that Pip was actually the one who was on the upward trajectory. And there's no way to know because the book hasn't been written yet. Right. So you're trying to like you're trying to say, well, Pip is poor at this point and Gatsby is poor. The for Gatsby is better. Gatsby ends up dead in a pool. Pip wins. Right. You know what I mean? So bitter it- rivalry <laughs> came to its close that one cold night in 1926. Yeah. These are the classic rivalries of history. Michigan, Ohio State, USC, <laughs> UCLA. And of course, Pip and Gatsby. Yeah. There's uh, something there's something about this song the hypnoticness of same as it ever was 
same as it ever was like that that's the thing that really hits me because mm. as as you were saying josh this is not if you are feeling that way about the podcast and about comparing yourself to david byrne this david is the way Byrne's podcast was doing way better at this point it life. was it was it was <laughs> look he had, he had he had he had a longer runway you know what i mean <laughs> if you want to compare yourself to another famous musician's podcast we mm. have really eclipsed bruce springsteen and barack obama at this point <laughs> My favorite moment of that podcast is where the at the end where t- both of them realize simultaneously on mic that it was a terrible what is it like? idea. It's like five episodes and they're all like yeah. ten minutes long. And they, he he got a lot of money from Spotify to do that stupid piece of shit. <laughs> Damn, but it was funny. Really no, it was really funny. Like midway through, they were just like, "Oh, we we have nothing yeah. to talk about." I, I like that the Obamas and the Clintons just steal money from like giant corporations for streaming contracts. It's great. Allegedly. Allegedly. I, I'm waiting for uh, Barack Obama to do a special where he interviews a French clown <laughs> uh, like Hillary did. I think that's the thing that we're really missing. What's awful um, is that clown is making great points, but everyone's like, well, he's just a French clown. He's insane. And like, yes, that's also <laughs> true. But like, if you understand, if you have a, if you have any remote respect for clown, it, it, it becomes immediately apparent that this man yeah. is on a whole other level than Hillary Rodham <laughs> ever was. She does not have this deep understanding of humanity that you require because the thing is comedy is good, but clown is more difficult. Clown is is more difficult. Hillary can't walk into a breeze. She cannot. She She cannot lose her balloon in that breeze. She couldn't even walk out of a car. Time is a holy ground, my friends. I think that's one of the things we can take away from this song as well. Uh, and and time isn't after us. It mm. is. It is. Time isn't over us. It just simply is. Yeah. And so David Burt does this whole revivalist meeting, and then he kind of fucks off for a mm-hmm. bit. Yeah. Because we have he needs one, a breather. Of, one of the greatest gear shifts in the history of concerts. Yes. Yeah, so genius of love. We've got a. Uh, we've got Chris Franz. <laughs> It is time for my song. There we go. My lead. <laughs> the girls can do it too, y'all. Genius of Love starts out with Chris France just fucking bellowing. He's drumming. Check it out. Tina's doing whatever the fuck Tina is doing. You hate this. Oh, I, 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 I really don't like it at all. <laughs> like this is, I do not like, I, oh, this I, is quirky and fun. No, you, you, you would rather this didn't happen. Well, so I think I, I in this moment, I feel a lot of, I guess, a, a certain bond to David Byrne. Mm-hmm. Because I think when I watch this, I feel the way that he likely felt being <laughs> off stage, getting into the fucking big suit and having to listen to this. We, we should we should also we should also square up like what this is. Yes. Specifically, yes. because we had a David Byrne song earlier that was not a Talking Heads song that, right. they, that they performed the concert. And so David Byrne, while he's doing his costume change, has seated the stage to a spinoff project of Talking Heads called the Tom Tom Club. Yeah, yeah, and Tom Tom Club is Chris and Tina's project, mm. right? Um, they yes. wanted to do an even more explicitly poppy sort of thing. And right. if you listen to Genius of Love and you hadn't actually heard that song, but you still recognized the melody, that is because it was, of course, very famously sampled in Fantasy by Mariah Carey. 
the note I took was like, this feels like Muzak's cool older brother. <laughs> That's sort of the best way to put it. I, I, the thing is, is also that Chris Franz, Chris Franz, uh, <laughs> it, it's like if Shy Ronnie were finally given his time in the spotlight, like it, it feels like at one point he just starts screaming, James Brown? Brown? James Brown! And it's yes, like, what, infamously. what are you talking about? He's still the godfather of y'all, so check uh, him out! Yeah, you know what? I it's am just, always saying this! You know, he's he's no he's no Paul Whiteman. Yeah. The king of jazz. Yeah. Who I mentioned mm. earlier, whose name you've That's already oh, yeah, forgotten. Yeah. Yeah. That's a callback. Yeah. That's a jazz callback. <laughs> uh, they also reference uh, Bohannon midway yeah. through, Bonin, and I thought they Bonin, were... Bonin, Bonin. I thought they were summoning an ancient god. Uh, no, turns out uh, Bahannon is a reference to Hamilton Bahannon, who was uh, like the percussionist of the disco era. Mm. So they're just yelling out different uh, people who do what they're doing better than what they're doing. Uh, Here's and that's, some references. Yeah, it's a, it's a, just a reference song. I, I think this is a fun diversion. But at the end, I think it is telling that they have to say, bye. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's that might be the funniest moment of the whole thing is Chris being like, that was the Tom Tom Club, y'all. Bye. <laughs> what a weird diversion that the was. The song has ended now. Thank you. I will say that the, uh, the, yeah. the crowd at the movie theater I was at fucking loved the Tom Tom Club. Oh, so sure. much more than I was expecting. Mm. They're fun. My my crowd remained stoic and silent. Yeah. Right. Uh, like your forebearers, Josh. <laughs> so uh, did my crowd. So, was it just you, Brian? Is that why? It was me at home, uh-huh. yeah. <laughs> nice. Did you wave goodbye? No. That's, I, 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 <laughs> I, I, Here's I the thing for the goodbye. listeners. I don't have fun. Mm. That's all. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. What a weird diversion that is. But we get right back on track we because uh, here comes the big suit. Yeah. David David Byrne comes back out on stage. He's wearing the biggest goddamn suit you've ever yeah. seen in your life. You see first just the shadow of him. And it's like, yeah. wait, why? Why is that man so wide? What is what is that man doing with his shoulders? How did this man become so large so fast? You think that David Byrne can't eat another bite, but here's the thing: he's in a suit big enough. <laughs> he's he's so powerful. Room. He's so powerful. This is, of course, girlfriend is better. He's got a girlfriend who's better than that, and nothing yeah. is better than this. my favorite song in the movie Hmm. i think what's cool about it is the way that we've been building up a lot of different pieces there's sort of the dramaturgical pieces of it that you were mentioning aj uh to do with sort of the storytelling here there is the fact that i have been uh waiting for four to five minutes for the tom tom club to stop singing uh (laughs) and they finally have uh (laughs) and this is such a weird wild and wonderful payoff because you know I can't even begin to imagine what it must have been like being there and having this reveal. Because if you know yeah. Talking Heads, you probably know like three things, right? You know uh, the thing that David Byrne does with his arm, the little, yeah, the yeah. little, the little swingy thing, uh, and then of course this, the big fucking suit. Yeah. And yes. it's just such a wild piece of costuming. <laughs> That you're yeah. not expecting. It's silly. It's wonderful. Yeah. It moves in a very weird way. And 
it is complemented, I think, so well by this song. Yeah, because this isn't this isn't Nathan Fielder putting on a suit that's too large for him. This is a specially constructed, very structured, large suit that he can even take off the pieces of it. And there's still like the large elements of the suit underneath the dress shirt, the pants that all retain their shape and uh, and they stay up. We're seeing our protagonist fully subsumed in the system, right? Mm -hmm. Literally being eaten alive by the thing he rallied against. But also empowered by it, right? Like being in the suit allows him to do things that he could not otherwise do. He's able to move in ways that were previously not possible. And there is something about that that makes you feel strangely lifted. And the fact that musically what's going on here is, you know, I got the girlfriend who's better than that. Nothing is better than this. It's it's braggadocious. It's being like, yeah, look at me. Look at how cool I am with my gigantic fucking suit. I love it. I love it so much. I think my favorite part about the song is at the very, very end. He's been saying, I got a girlfriend that's better than that. You know, everything is great. I'm the best. And then it ends in this questioning. It very abruptly stops Mm -hmm. with. Wait, it is though, right? Right. Like this is the best, right? That to me is the end of the protagonist story, mm-hmm. right? That is that it is a tragedy. We have ended his journey. He has gotten everything he thought he ever wanted and it sucks kind of. Yeah. <laughs> he's he's trapped in a big suit that does not fit him. Uh that looks amazing, but is but has ultimately trapped him in a cage. You end up in this situation where sure you can sort of lord your perceived superiority over everybody else. But if there's still sort of an emptiness in it, then it's very difficult to go anywhere from there. And I think also then that takes us into the the next song very naturally, because the next song we, we all love a we all love a baptism metaphor, don't we, folks? Uh, we sure do. The next song, of course, is Take Me to the River. Yeah. This is the only cover, right? Uh, I believe so. Yeah. yeah. In, so in, this in, is in the, the whole ultimate song, at mm-hmm. least as presented in the movie. And it's the one cover. I think that's really interesting. Yeah. Um, uh, right. I know this song from the Big Mouth Billy Bass. Right. Because it would sing yeah. this and Don't Worry, Be Happy. And so for mm-hmm. a moment when I watched this, I was like, wait, is this a talking head song? Did I just not know that this was a talking head song this whole time? <laughs> this was not the first time that they debuted this cover. This cover was included on 1978's More Songs About Buildings and Food. But once mm. again, the Stop Making Sense version is just better. There's more of it. It's bigger. And of course, we have, a, a, I think, one of the coolest moments where everybody gets introduced at the end of the concert by name mm-hmm. and they all get sort of the opportunity to play their piece. The song yeah. breaks down and it builds back up again. And you feel this like catharsis with the band that they're having the opportunity to sort of come together to play us off in this big ending. Mm-hmm. This to me feels like the most like college theater. Like it is obviously a revivalist meeting. It has a lot of like the religious connotations, but there is something about like getting together and delivering a finale like this mm-hmm. that makes me feel like I- I'm witnessing a show I put on. Is this you where know, is this one of the 19 years? Did, did you cry at this point? Was this one of the parts? That you oh, cried? absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> but in terms of like the narrative of like where we're going with Stop Making Sense, right? We have David Burns, Big Suit Man, 
who has reached the end of the line and thought he had gotten everything he ever wanted. He didn't get it. So that's where he went for salvation. Right. But then this final track of the show before the encore is OK. So if that didn't work, if finding it in the modern world uh, doesn't bring you that kind of nirvana, where do you find salvation? Mm-hmm. You know, in a world that's like on the edge of annihilation by the state, by natural forces, by society, by your own fucking lovers. Right. Where do you find solace, redemption, meaning your own modern lovers? Yeah. Uh, 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 uh. And burn over the course of the song strips himself of the big suit. Right. He takes off the coat. Mm -hmm. He takes off under layers of things. He puts on a silly little hat. (laughs) And he puts on a silly little hat and he joins his band, his community. He he creates a holy call for the creation of art because the actual way to reclaim that past that they so desperately yearn for, for so much of this, right, uh, is to immortalize it in art. And I think that's what makes this movie so successful. Mm -hmm. It immortalizes that struggle in art. It feels timeless because it's so like painstakingly recreates the joy of creation and the joy of community. What a fucking finale. I love this fucking song. And once they are all together, then it's just a straight pivot into the actual closer cross-eyed and painless. This is a uh, exciting, but low key track. I would say in the studio version off of remain in light here, they, uh, you know, the audience is already, everybody's on their feet, right? They've done the build up and they've done the breakdown. They built back up again. And so yeah. now they're just ready to go fucking off. They shove yeah. a firecracker up the song's ass. It explodes. We uh-huh. finally, we finally get close ups of the audience. Like we had yeah. mentioned earlier, this is the only time where that you really see the mm-hmm. audience's faces. They turn the house lights on and there yeah. is just cameras up in everybody's faces. You get some great, great, great eighties fashions here. Stashes galore. And, and just this collective view euphoria of the crowd in a way that you can only experience at a live concert event it's just oh it's so it it makes me feel this euphoria that i really only experience when i am listening to music The final refrain of this is I'm still waiting, which I think is very interesting, right? No, 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 no. It's it's that thing like the whole song is about facts cutting holes in us and uh that, you know, at one point David Byrne even says I lost my shape, which I thought was very interesting because he took off the yeah. big suit, so yeah. he literally lost his he shape. Did. But it would translate a little bit into like stuff like waiting on the world to change, right? Which was uh originally coined as like the millennial, like like there were so many magazine articles about like waiting on the world to change. It's like, oh well, this is what the millennials do. They you know, just I, sit I, back I, and they're I lazy, they're waiting that. on the world I to am change. Yeah. Always doing that. But it's just like, no, that's the Gen X mentality, right? Yeah. It is sort of like we're waiting for inspiration to come and actually change the world. But we we have it just hasn't happened yet. And we'll sit here and we'll wait to find that salvation uh, for as long as it takes. I love this movie. Yeah. Coming back to it time and time again is just one of those things where when I need a pick me up, when I need to feel something it gets me right back in that place again. And uh, I'm glad we were able to go back to it, watch it for the show again. And uh, listener, if you've enjoyed us doing this, 
we've got more just like it at our Patreon, which is patreon.com slash worst of all. And we've got lots more episodes in our back catalog that are dealing with all sorts of great subject matter, things to do with the decline of empire and the pop culture that it accords with. So thank you for listening to this. And uh, AJ, was there, you want to you take us home? As I mentioned, I saw this movie at Cinema Village on 12th Street, and this is a particularly interesting time of year for NYU freshmen, right? It is their first sort of fall winter in the city, and, you know, for a lot of people, it's like heading into their first actual winter, right? And every time I walk around the village during this time, I I feel the feelings of my freshman year self, how excited I was for the cold and for the seasons to change, and how desperately I was throwing myself against the wall of this institution that just did not accept my particular kind of weird or I maybe that's not fair. Maybe challenge was attempting to challenge my particular kind of weird by completely removing any of that weird from me. And it always makes me feel this weird mix of nostalgia, but also this kind of acute depression, um, because those days of flailing and throwing myself against that particular wall are behind me and they're just never coming back. And I was feeling all this stuff. And as I was walking to the theater, uh, this kid appeared in front of me who I swear to God had my exact hair. (laughs) From when I went to school, uh, just this uh, kind of disheveled mess of a kid. Was he carrying had, a horse cane? He had a large Ikea bag filled with props and costume no pieces. No way. And I swear to God, guys, it looked like I was looking at my younger self made manifest in front of me. I had to stop. It took the breath out of me. And this kid looked exhausted from a long day at studio. And I saw the same weight that used to be on my shoulders uh, the weight of college the weight of studio bearing down on him in the same way but then this other person walked up to him apparently a friend of his and they started talking about classes what the props were for uh for the monologue that he had done earlier that day and how he felt like it didn't go great and his friend told him to hang in there that it probably went better than he thought it did and he gave him this huge hug before they parted ways and this is not younger me but younger me picked up his bag and carried on and that's what talking heads is to me it's this little artistic weirdo standing on the corner of 12th and university with a bag full of props the world the system trying to beat him down but him pursuing anyway and making him something and making him something weird and bombastic and good And I hope someday that kid finds himself going to see the 60th anniversary of Stop Making Sense in theaters and sees a little him running around trying to make art because ultimately it's the same as it ever was. Same as it ever was. Same as it ever was. I'm the worst of all possible AJs. I'm the worst of all possible Bryans. And I'm the worst of all possible Joshes. See you next week. Okay, bye.